are listening to Radio Free Signs of the Times, broadcasting to the world on the eve of destruction. We are doomed to extinction because of agriculture. We have raped and pillaged this planet. There is a, a disinformation program literally for everyone, no matter who you are and what, what your interests are, uh, what your beliefs are, uh, which, which way you're focusing. There is a website set up just for you to take you in and to vector your thinking and your attention into the way that they want you to think. Categories for things happening in the sky and the cosmos. If you read the scientific reports that come through and put the pieces Hello and welcome to Sot Talk Radio. Today is February 3rd and tonight your hosts are myself, Neil Bradley. And myself, Joe Quinn. We're delighted to be joined again this week by Jason Martin. Hey Jason. Hey, what's going on, man? They like me so much they brought me back. <laughs> yeah, we had Jason on last week for a cracking show um, on gun control in the U.S. Um, if you haven't listened to it yet, you can listen to it at blogtalkradio forward slash softnet or it's currently on top of our page on soft.net. This week we're going to be talking about psychopaths. You may have noticed myself, Joe and Jason discussing this uh, in passing or quite a lot as well uh, last week when we mentioned time and again psychopaths in power. It's something that comes up a lot uh, in our research and on our uh, website soft.net and we figured we would get into this topic in more depth this week. Find uh bring a lot of new people maybe that are not so aware of this issue, if you like, up to speed with um what could be the topic of the times, I think. Yeah, absolutely. last week we um we were for those that were listening, we were talking about gun control and the idea of a revolution and stuff. Uh, in the U.S. or anywhere in the world, and that that revolution had to be a revolution of the mind more than a physical revolution, and that ultimately the the target of such a revolution, uh, or, the, or the cause of the social ills that would provoke such a revolution, was essentially corrupt government. And I think we did mention the idea of psychopaths and psychopaths in power very briefly. So, for that reason, we wanted to uh, just as a follow-on from last week, get into this topic a little bit more as a to kind of complete the picture, if you will. Um, yeah, we're going to have a special guest on this week. Um, we've got uh, Harrison Keeley, who will be joining us, and we're going to be uh, asking him a few questions. Harrison is the editor of uh, Red Pill Press, which published uh, Andrew Lobachevsky's book um, on psychopaths in power, on this very topic we'll be discussing, it's called Political Ponoology. Harrison is also an editor of Doc Connector magazine and a guest writer on psychopathology for Safe Relationships magazine. So uh, we'll be welcoming him shortly and put some questions to him. I'll remind listeners that you can call in anytime you want if you've got any questions yourself. This is obviously quite a dense topic, and as, as we've been saying, it affects a lot of areas, if not all areas of human life, so everyone's got something to say on it. Oh, yeah, or they should have on uh, the guest, the guest um, call-in number, just for those who don't uh, don't know it, it's on our webpage. But uh, just as a reminder, it's it's the US number seven one eight 
508-948-9499. So give us a call at any time during the show. Feel free to interrupt uh, if you have something to say or a question to ask. So, um, yeah, I think probably we want to want to go straight into Harrison here uh, and ask him a few questions, uh, get a few ideas from him. So, Harrison, are you there? Yep, I'm here. You're, welcome. You're very welcome to Thought Talk Radio. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. Harrison, thanks for joining us. Um, you've noticed from the title of our show, we put it as Our Psychopaths Cool. Um, now, regular thought readers and people who are aware of what psychopaths are and what they do will, of course, know the answer to that very well. But we've framed it like that because can't help but notice that uh, when the psychopath is like the, the topic of psychopathy is being discussed in the mainstream media or the, the characters that come through in, in popular culture, you you would you couldn't be blamed for thinking sometimes that uh, psychopaths are something that's appealing, that they have appealing traits that people would aspire to have themselves. Um, before we get into that, let's just start with some basics. So, what is a psychopath? Where can we start with this? Well, a psychopath is a certain type of uh, person who lacks a conscience. Now, that's probably the, the best, simplest way you can describe it, is that they completely lack any sort of conscience. And that goes into a certain number of other character traits. So, you know, they'll psychopaths are typically very charming, so they can they're very good um, very good con artists. So they can talk people out of anything or into anything, and they put on a, a show. They can they can put on a persona that is perfectly adapted to to the kind of person they want you to think they are. So mm. that's basically the definition of a you know a good con artist. They'll just they'll be whatever you want them to be or whatever they need to be in order to get something for you. They're extremely manipulative. They are pathological liars. Um, and when they do something horrible or something like wrong or evil to a person, they lack any remorse, like to the point where they'll even blame the victim. So if, um, well, for example, uh, Robert Hare, who studies psychopaths, uh, he's got a book called Without Conscience. And in that book, there are a lot of great anecdotes of um, just things that psychopaths have done or said in his experience and in his interviews with them. And so, for example, if if they have murdered someone, they might completely shirk any responsibility and and just blame the victim. They say, oh, well, you know, it was really his fault. I mean, if he if he wouldn't have done this, you know, I wouldn't have had to stab him. As if, like, it's it was the other person's fault that he had to stab him. And so they just lack any kind of uh, remorse for anything they do to anyone else. And part of that's of course, you know that's that's part of their lack of conscience, and that it, <clears throat> the that's rooted in what psychologists would call like a shallow affect. They really have shallow emotions um, to the point where it's kind of they're indis or they're totally different from a normal human. Like norm, a, a normal human who experiences just normal human emotions just can't even grok the way a psychopath feels or what's going on in their minds because they don't have any of those normal human emotions. They don't have any feeling of connection to another being. They don't have any sense of uh, nurturing or caring or putting, 
putting themselves in another person's shoes and experiencing what they're feeling. And so that's that's really a complete lack of um, of empathy. They're cold-hearted. And just a couple of the other features, they, um, according to well, Robert Hare at least, they, they um, lack control over the behaviors, so they'll, they'll often do, like, you know, make s- stupid choices just in the moment for thrill-seeking or... They lack long-term planning, so they'll 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 do things just on the spur of the moment, just because they have they feel a whim to to do something. And often those things that they do have to do with um, you know getting something from someone else. Um, it's usually a, a selfish motive um, so, uh, to put themselves in a position of power over someone else. So psychopaths they're really out for themselves and. That's about it. They don't really care about anyone or anything except getting what they want. Okay, wow. Um, you touched on what I've come to understand as well is, is the core defining feature of somebody that you might call a psychopath, namely that there's a complete lack of conscience. Um, and also, as part of this, the difficulty that people have with understanding what 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 is meant by a psychopath, even when you describe it as you've just done, it's because, well, everyone assumes everyone else is more or less the same, right? We've all got a conscience. But uh, that's the very thing that is not there. And so what is there instead? Well, hopefully we're going to be able to find uh, get some deeper understanding of this tonight. Um, another key thing that I think we should get out of the way first is the difference, if there is any, between a sociopath and a psychopath. Because you'll often hear people jump between the two terms. In some cases, they appear to, if somebody's using one word or the other, they, they mean something else, depending on which word they're using. Is there any difference? And if so, what is it between sociopath and psychopath? Well, that could be a tricky one, because, like you said, people jump back and forth between the terms. So... Sometimes when they're saying sociopath, they might actually be talking about psychopaths or vice versa. Like a lot of times in pop culture and in movies, you'll hear someone, um, you know, a character call another character a psychopath just because they did something evil or, you know, they're a, they're a criminal or a serial killer or something. Now, and that that's just kind of common language, um, but it, in the in the actual science, um, pretty much everyone in North America, at least, that studies the phenomenon We'll use the word psychopath to describe what I was talking about. Now, sociopaths, um, typically, like, if if a scientist is using that word, like someone who knows what they're talking about, chances are they're talking about um, someone with antisocial personality disorder. Now, I'll just get something out of the way. First of all, um, there's a, a a diagnostic tool called the psychopathy checklist that was developed by Robert Hare, and it's pretty much the standard it's used in courts and uh, the penal system um, for identifying um, psychopaths. So it's you know it's got um, 40 points, and if you score above 30, then you're considered a psychopath. There's also the diagnostic uh, statistics manual <clears throat> that's used by psychiatrists, and that has antisocial antisocial personality disorder in it. And the thing about the DSM is that all of the the mental disorders in there, they're pretty much all classified by behavior. So the, you've got a checklist of certain behaviors, and you check off a certain number of them, and if you've got a certain number, you've got that. Now, the problem is is that 
people tend to equate antisocial personality disorder with psychopathy, but they're actually two separate but kind of overlapping things. So if you if you take a prison population, for example, you'll have a certain number of people that can be classified as antisocial personality disorder. And these will be people, you know, criminals who, um, you know, have trouble, uh, you know, Im- trouble with impulse control. They engage in violent, you know, repeated violent crimes, um, basic antisocial behaviors. But the problem with that is that only about 20% of people, of the criminals, you know, in, in prison populations with antisocial personality disorder are also psychopaths. Okay. So when we're talking... So when, just one more thing. When we're talking about antisocial personality disorder, that's t- typically what we mean by a psychopath, and, or I mean by a sociopath. So when people are talking about sociopaths, they're talking about these criminals you know, that violate social norms and commit crimes, but they're not necessarily psychopaths. A lot of that can be, um, well, sociopath, um, it basically means caused by society, a sickness caused by society. So these could be people who are just raised in a in a criminal environment to do in to to engage in criminal acts. So um, it can also be caused by certain types of brain damage. So the you know there's an overlap, but really a sociopath is kind of a bigger catch-all phrase for you know all kinds of you know behavioral and criminal acts like that. So Harrison, when you say that the um, when you cite that figure of twenty percent of violent criminals in 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 prisons are have be, have been identified as or, uh, as psychopaths. Mm-hmm. Uh, that obviously suggests that the average psychopath isn't a violent criminal. Yeah. Or eighty percent of them aren't violent criminals, and that kind of uh, that doesn't jive with the general public perception of of um, a knife wielding maniac. Yeah, of, of psychopaths, which a is serial, serial killer. killers, and they're they're crazed, you know, homicidal maniacs. Yeah, and that's probably one of the most important things that we can learn from the study of psychopaths is because when we think about psychopaths just in pop culture, you know, like I said, we're, the the connotation is usually that they're these violent serial killer criminals, but that's there's just one subset of those criminals that are actually psychopaths. And, in fact, there's a subset of, you know, any group that you can find in society that are psychopaths. So you can find psychopathic doctors or politicians or therapists or, you know, bosses in a corporate environment. Um, Literally, like, psychopaths can be found pretty much anywhere and everywhere. Yeah, we've seen this in the past few years. I mean, just cite a couple of fairly recent studies, um, Describing one in ten Wall Street employees being psychopaths, um, something like one in twenty CEOs in the U.S. are suspected psychopaths, and these are—I mean, these are not just these figures are not pulled out of a hat. They're based on on studies that are done, but you still get the impression that it's very difficult to get any kind of real number because, uh, of course, first of all, the the the, the numbers we have the best. The best idea of where the psychopaths are, they're available for study. Robert Hare, I think himself, has said, uh, I, I think I saw recently he said, you know, it's one thing going to, to prisons and trying to get an idea of numbers, but if, if I could have had it back, I would have been trying to get an idea of, of how many, what kind of percentage we're looking at in boardrooms uh, in major companies uh, in North America, because clearly there's a large 
unexplored area there. Um, if you, you mentioned briefly um, the DSM manual and also Robert Hare's checklist, and these two things are, if you like, they're kind of the guidelines we have to go on for uh, getting an idea of, of of diagnosing a psychopath. Are there any are there any other ways? I mean, what kind of clues could someone be picking up on if uh, if if say they have someone in their life that or uh, their boss or someone yeah, they know they, that they expect of being a psychopath? Well, there's there's actually there was a book published recently called Almost a Psychopath uh, by Ronald Schutten and James Silver, and I haven't read the whole thing yet, but there's a good um, a good little checklist that they've got, um, it basically comes down to you know, knowing the, the key traits of the psychopath that I mentioned before, and they kind of just uh, put them in a way to, to see, to compare with the behaviors of the person that you're you know, involved with that you might think is a psychopath. So, for example, they ask, um, are they superficially charming and glib with an answer for everything? Um, is there a lack of empathy? Um, when confronted with a difficult moral choice, do they often more often than not, rationalize and arrive at a decision to act in their own self-interest? Do they lie repeatedly, including when it is unnecessary for, or for minor reasons? Are they conning and manipulative? When they get criticized for something, is it always someone else's fault? When they cause harm or hurt to others, is there a lack of true remorse? Do they seem to have a limited capacity to experience and express feelings for, for others or maintain relationships? Do they find it easy to ignore responsibilities? Do people in situations exist solely for the purpose of gratifying their needs and wants? So those those are some of some of the things that you want to look for. And um, I would add to be... that list uh, is your name, Bill O'Reilly, because yeah. <laughs> that just describes every interview I've ever seen him conduct. Yeah, glibness, yeah. superficial charm, lack of empathy. Well, that's 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 kind of an interesting point because when Neil was talking about uh, Wall Street bankers and CEOs and stuff. It strikes me that it's possible that um, psychopaths can get their jollies, which is basically kind of like dominating and you know, <coughs> fulfilling com- some kind of destructive principle that they that, that they that they have within them. The need to destroy, to dominate, uh, to control. Um, so the the twenty percent figure of, of psychopaths that are violent that, that end up in prison, they're maybe the ones that that couldn't find an outlet for this. This need to destroy, this hunger to to dominate and destroy uh, that they that they just are born with, I presume. Um, compared to uh, the but but the one the the CEOs, for example, and the Wall Street bankers are able to find an outlet for that kind of uh, that that you know that need to dominate in ways that don't involve you know criminal behavior. Well, yeah, or by extreme, uh, extremely violent. I mean, you can be extremely violent. Look at politicians. Look at Look at some leaders of various countries. I mean, surely there's some sense of a if they, if they have this this need to destroy. There's a kind of a catharsis there if they get to you know send a bunch of uh, drones into other countries and blow up some kids and stuff. Surely, I mean, that's that's for, for, for me that's one question. You know, is it uh, is it possible that a psychopath could get uh, this need destructive need fulfilled without necessarily going and killing someone himself or herself? I think it also has to do with um, with just how smart they are and how much control they have, like how much you know prefrontal lobe uh, activity they have. They've done some studies 
there are very few studies on what they call successful psychopaths or the ones that you know are su- successful in everyday life and that don't go to prison for you know violent crimes and they find that they do have uh you know a higher degree of control over their behaviors and they're probably you know they're just smarter they they find better ways of getting around the system of getting what they want without engaging in acts that are you know so obviously criminal or you know that will so obviously get you to prison they're better at uh, you know, finding the the ways around that. So you know, like so what you you're say, saying, what you're so saying is presumably there's a there's a spectrum yeah. among people who are who are genetic or clinical psychopaths. Uh, there's a spectrum of in the same way there's a spectrum among a spectrum among the normal population of intelligence, ambition, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and the same applies, obviously, presumably, let's say, to the psychopath. Exactly. Yeah. So the smart ones will be able to get away with it. They know how to you know, read the read the rules of the game or understand the rules of the game and do it in such a way that they don't run afoul of the law. And obviously, getting into positions of power provides a certain immunity to uh, prosecution as well compared to the average person in the street. Yeah, and uh, that's exactly what it is, is getting in positions of power. Even the, you know, the low-level, you know, criminal psychopaths, that's what they do in their, you know, limited sphere of influence. You know, they'll get in a position of power. It might be in a small gang or... You know, just you know, when they're planning a heist or something, they they have, uh, they, you know, they have a way of just maneuvering themselves into the position of power. Um, except when you get the smart ones that uh, you know that wear suits, then they're the ones that will, um, you could say, infiltrate, let's say, a corporation. So they'll. Um, Paul Babiak and Robert Hare they wrote a book called Snakes and Suits about corporate psychopaths, and they describe how they get into positions of power. So first, they gain entry into the corporation. Then they kind of assess the people in the corporation, the people that will be useful to them, the people that they can use as patsies, the people that they can frame, the people whose work, who, whose work they can use. And then uh, so they basically establish these relationships, these power dynamics within the group, within the company. And then they basically play the game, they manipulate, and then they can either remove the person that's in their way, and they do that you know, using any kind of sneaky and... <laughs> Um, oh, that backhanded ways. And then, okay. they get to the, then they become the CEO. Okay. We've got a call here, so we're going to take this call. Hello. Hello. What's your name? Lisa Giuliani. Hi. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi, Lisa. I have a question. Could you get into uh, how psychopaths influence society, like populations, through the media, power centers? <laughs> An example that I put on Facebook one day was a picture of a guy sitting on top of a, a, a building, and he was he was going to jump. And I asked the people on my Facebook list to notice how many of the commenters, the question was, would you tell this guy to jump? And I asked people to notice how many, how many of the commenters were actually wanting the guy to jump, telling the, saying they would tell the person to jump off the building. And ask them, you know, what what is this telling you about our society when we've got people who are encouraging someone to commit suicide? You know, like what's happening yeah. to our society? I just thought maybe uh, you could get into that a little bit. Absolutely, yeah, that's 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 a great point, um, and it is something we're going to get into. I mean, it's dealt probably most specifically. Uh, by Andrew Lobachevsky in his book Political Ponderology, which is uh, 
Harrison is the is the is the publisher or works for the publisher of that book. So um, and he talks about the word ponderology or ponderogenesis, which is the essentially the psychopathization of of society and how psychopathic ideals uh, are spread throughout the normal population, i.e. the non-psychopathic population. Yeah, because in trying to get people to understand why it's so important to learn about this, um, yeah, I try to, like, get them to see that it's not just these political psychopaths in power, but that these are these 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 things, they're, they're not really very human anymore. They've been changed, or, or they just are different from, you know, they've always been different, but... <clears throat> It seems to me like they don't un- people don't understand why it's so important to learn about this and and I try to tell them that their influence extends you know through the media and in throughout the power centers education organized religion you know and and uh, I would I, if you could get into that I'd appreciate it okay yeah we we, we plan to thank you I'm, okay all right a really good book would be um, Persuasion, uh, Influence the Science of Persuasion by Robert Cialdini, which is, uh, which is very uh, good and details how the uh, media manipulates. Yeah, so Harrison, you heard our question, yeah, from Lisa? Yeah. yeah. So, so could you just get into that a little bit? Sure. Um, well, I think the... The best way to start is is that if you have psychopaths that have achieved positions of power in a in a society, they're the ones that are basically dictating or influencing the way things get presented to society. So when you have a psychopath that's the you know in a, let's say as a president or a, you know a dictator or anything like that, their their personality affects and influences the the government. You know the way things are presented, like Lisa was saying, education. Um, you can have it in re- in religion, and so when you have these psychopaths in positions of power, their worldview and the way the the way they see things and the way they the way yeah just the way they see the world that filters down. So we end up having a a whole society that really only has these psychopathic ideals to emulate, and so you get normal people who kind of internalize these psychopathic values, and at the you know to to be to be fair you could say most people are just conned by it they don't know any better and uh, you thought you know at the start of the show and, and in the description of the show online you talked about the the way things are presented in pop culture and in the, in the in the media and so you know we've got a show like Dexter um which features as its protagonist uh, a serial killer and actually you know i think that the first episode of that show was great it was a really good presentation of the way a psychopath operates, what's going on in their minds, the way they interact with other people. I thought it, was, it could be, you know, it could be taught in psychology, or it could be shown in psychology classes as a good intro to psychopathy. But then the show kind of, as the show develops, it gets to the point where, um, because the, the guy's a protagonist, you basically want him to, get, want him to get away with it. You're afraid that he's going to get caught. Mm. We have this kind of twisting of the idea where, when you really look at a psychopath, when you really read the case studies, even with the, the extreme ones, like with serial killers, it, it, it's, it kind of boggles the mind just how dark and evil like these people really are, just the, the depth of depravity that, they'll go, that they will go to 
um, in what they do to other people. And then when you kind of, in pop culture, when you mix that with, you know, the idea of it being cool or just these people are just being misunderstood, um, it creates this kind of cognitive dissonance where we don't really, as a society, know what's going on and our our ideas are, are twisted on it. And so not only do we have, like, disinformation about the nature of psychopathy, we also internalize some psycho- psychopathic values so we don't value other life. And um, like Lisa was saying, we can, you know, be encouraging people to suicide just because, you know, well, it's just some other person, you know, if they're going to kill themselves, whatever, what does it matter to me? And so we get this culture of selfishness, and that, that really goes against, um, you know, all the... Uh, kind of ideals that we think of as being human qualities. And so, you know, we're, I, th- I think that with psychopaths in power, uh, the people in society, you know, they become more and more, uh, they come more and more to resemble psychopaths in certain ways. Now, they don't become psychopaths. Yeah, let me have a... Yeah. Because Lisa Giuliani posed, uh, was talking about how she asked all of her readers, you know, to note the posts, you know. Mm. And I think that the Internet is, is a rather interesting entity for studying... Uh, Psychopathy, because uh, because it um, you have on, on the internet you have these things called trolls. You know, people automatically have identified psychopaths without having any psychological knowledge, and, and they yeah. label them trolls. And uh, Penny Arcade, uh, a great net cartoon, created this thing called the Gift, which is the Greater Internet Fucktard Theory. Okay. Which basically describes what happens to people when they can act without any. Uh, fear of punishment with anonymity and you see like lots and lots of people coming out on the internet and being just absolutely horrible human beings and I think that the, the source of that is that there are a lot more psychopaths in society than we've been led to believe and when they get on the internet of course you, you see these trolls and cyber stalkers and all this different stuff um, so I just wanted to point that out because Lisa Lisa brought up this whole talking about the comments and people saying yeah jump 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 you know this kind of troll phenomenon on the internet, yeah. and trolls are essentially psychopaths. I mean, that's what I feel from my experiences on the internet, that trolls are very psychopathic people. Yeah, this touches on a number of topics um, that come to mind for me. I mean, recently there was this article about how uh, some research team, I think in the U.S., are using Twitter to try and spot psychopaths. Now, this is different from what Jason's describing here, I think. But you can see how the two things would easily be conflated. So in this study, they were trying to, uh, based on some criteria, they were trying to use certain keywords that people use in their tweets, what kind of punctuation they use, and deducing from that whether or not you can spot if somebody is a psychopath based on their Twitter tweets. And, and we've we got to be careful, I think, to distinguish, you know, actively telling the, diagnosing someone as a psychopath from the more general observations that can be made of of um, uh, the way society is going based on its, its overall behavior. I mean, the, the, the thing that Lisa points out with um, the kind of comments and posts that people make, that's one thing in a hypothetical scenario that she just posited there. But there have been real cases where people on Facebook have been urged by their so-called friends to commit suicide. In other words, they, they actually posted on Facebook, I'm feeling blue, I feel like hell, I'm thinking about going over the edge. And um, they actually were 
egged on by their friends, so to speak, their Facebook friends, and they were there have been several instances where people have committed suicide live on Facebook. It's, it's horrifying, you know. Um, I mean that that case is horrifying, but think about you know all of the sort of psychological torture that goes on um, with people uh, online, you know, and the the, the kind of like characters that come out and do these things. I mean, obviously, not everybody who says something mean on the internet is automatically a psychopath, but there is obvious trends of sort of like serial cyber stalkers that that go around trolling the internet, and that you know, I mean, it's one thing when you say one or two things mean or mean-spirited or you get angry at somebody. That's one thing. But when you see somebody like following people around from board to board and like searching out their IP and I'm going to come do this and I'm going to kill you and all this thing and I'm going to kill your family and you see that kind of stuff like even on YouTube, you know, I mean, it's, it's absolutely insane. And I mean, those, I'm going to call a spade a spade when I say that, you know, somebody who's doing that kind of stuff is, is psychopathic, man. I'm sorry, but that's evil, you know. For sure, for that sure. That dedication to just... Hurt, trying to hurt somebody, you know, and and stalking them, and and searching out their IP address, and trying to find out where they live, and stuff like that. I mean, that's that's psychopathic, man. That's not cool, you know. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, we're going to be talking about this hopefully a lot tonight. I mean, it's not just the number of psychopaths; it, it's the psychopathic behavior that normal people are aping. You know, what has drawn them to that? It's been mentioned uh, briefly, and I think. I think it's something we should get straight into. Um, Harrison, you still there? Yep. Harrison, what kind of numbers do you think we're talking about in terms of psychopaths out there? An overall number or... Well, you mentioned something that's really important (coughs) earlier, and that's that, uh, you know, what Robert Harris said, that he studies psychopaths in prison populations. So we've got this, or he had this, you know, population available to him for study. And um, the the problem we get into with the, with the general population is that it's really hard to do studies like that, and very few have been done. You know, it's hard to go around, you know, and get a, a completely random sample, you know, with enough people in a, you know, in a society and do these tests on them to see if they're psychopaths. It's just, it's, the, the logistics of it are just really difficult. So... All right, hey, they, uh, uh, hold that thought, Harrison. We're going to take, take another call here. All right. Hello. 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 Hi. 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 This is Corey. Corey Shink. Hey, Corey. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. I uh, I just wanted to say thank you for bringing this topic up. I think it's amazing, and I love the show. So I added it to my contacts on my phone. So I uh, really quick. My comment that I wanted to make was that uh, Harrison, I believe, in, in the beginning, it said that one of the fundamental characteristics of psychopathy was lacking a conscience. That's right, yeah. And it just seems to me that uh, in the world today, a lot of people lack that conscience, uh, especially towards someone that's outside of their their group, like, uh, you know, like uh, if they're, like, Muslim or, you know, anything like that. And I was wondering if maybe he could talk a little bit about that and how the war on terror kind of seems to keep on... Uh, spreading out over the whole world, making everyone the enemy, and if that kind of contributes to this this sociopathy that we see. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's a really good point. The I, I think that the kind of the distinction that has to be made is that a psychopath, 
won't identify or won't have conscience with anyone. That'll be, and that'll include their inner circle. That'll include their family, the people that you know others might consider their friends just by you know watching their interactions with other people. Psychopaths really, uh, you know, only out for him or herself. Like they're the only person in their universe that matters. Now you can get people, you know, so, so-called normal people that aren't psychopaths who really care about their family or who really care about their, you know, their country or um, some causes that they're involved in. And what a psychopath will do will <coughs> set, set those kind of people against each other. So that's basically what a war is. That's a, a group of psychopaths that are setting groups of people against each other and dehumanizing and demonizing, you know, one group to the other to the point where that that other group doesn't matter to the other to to the other group. Um, the, it, they, they don't come within that that sphere of influence or that sphere of conscience. So you know you can get a person that really does have a, a conscience or at least you know um, you know the, the the bare necessities of one, but that won't extend past a certain circle around them. And so you get um, you get these it's this divide and con this divide and conquer tactic where you're, a psychopath will basically c- try to convince one person that other people are psychopaths. That's basically what leaders do in in wars. Is they try to what they do is they project their own uh, their own traits onto the enemy group. So when you have a war, you know, um, with the war on terror, for example, people will will see Muslims um, a- as and if and if you ask them, you know, what kind of people Muslims are, they'll they'll basically be, destru- be describing a psychopath. That's what the Israelis have been doing with the Palestinians. Like when uh, when you when you see comments from Israelis on the street just talking about Palestinians, they they speak of them as if they weren't human, as if they were just these soulless, um, you know, evil people as a group. And really, you, you'll get you'll get soulless and evil people in any population, but it's uh, it's a fairly small number compared to you know everyone else. Mm-hmm. And so that that's that, I think that's the essential point is. Psychopaths will project their qualities on other people, and that's how they get other people. That's how they get their own people to hate other people. They're really hating those traits that they themselves have, but they're projecting them onto another group that it benefits them to go to war against. Well, assuming, assuming, I mean, I, I don't know if we can really say that a, a psychopath would hate his own traits. He probably yeah. loves his own traits, no, right? No, oh yeah, no, I, I, that's not what I meant. Okay. Remember the article that I wrote that you know psychopaths are passing laws to protect themselves from each other. It's like they're they have they have this whole game that they play. The psychopaths in power. You know they know that they're psychopaths. They know the other side psychopaths and and they play games. I mean to them that your life is a game. Wars are a game. It's all fun. You know push a couple of buttons. A few million people die. Sign a couple of papers. Somebody goes off to a camp. You know all these different stuff. And it's games between them. It's I think that in a certain sense. Um, it's fun for them. I think that they, they get an enjoyment out of pulling the wool over people. It's 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 like here I am a psychopath and I'm getting you to hate this other guy who's also a psychopath. And isn't it so fun because <laughs> you don't even realize that I'm manipulating? Yeah, you. it's domination and manipulation and enjoyment of that. Yeah, domination and manipulation. So Corey, did that answer your question more or less? We'll probably continue to talk <laughs> about it, but I don't want to keep you on the line there. No, yeah, that was the most uh, satisfactory uh, explanation of war that I've ever heard. Thank you very much. You're doing a great job. All right, thank you, thank you, Corey, for calling in. Bye. All right, see ya. So, actually, someone has just walked into our studio here. It's a very special guest. 
Her name is, uh, I think she must have been listening and felt compelled to come down and, and set us straight. Uh, her name is Laura knight Yadchik, and she has uh, written quite a lot on this topic, so no better person to join in the discussion and uh, give us some some pointers. So welcome, Laura. Hi. I hope everybody can hear me because these guys gave me the lousiest microphone in the room. That is not true. You're it coming was the only fine. one left. The best one. You're lucky you got a chair. <laughs> You're coming through fine. Yeah, I want to I want to bring the topic back to the to the title of the show which is you know, <laughs> do people think the psychopaths are cool and and why do they think the psychopaths are cool? And if you'll give me a minute, let me lay a little groundwork and mm-hmm. then see if we can't uh, you know, crank some of these crank some of these people up and get some calls in here. Uh back on October 22nd, of 2002, I believe it was, uh, I began publishing uh, articles pointing out that our leadership in politics and, uh, you know, all over the world, not just in the United States, but I was particularly focused on, you know, Bush and the neocons, that they were exhibiting the traits of psychopathy. And for, you know, a considerable period of time, you know, I came under a lot of attack, uh, you know, a lot of defamation, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, the cat was kind of out of the bag and other people started getting on the bandwagon and talking about it. And not long after that, as soon as everybody started realizing, well, it's really true, people in power, people in politics, people in in uh, any kind of authoritative position, you know, basically do exhibit the traits of psychopathy. Uh, So as soon as they, you know, got onto that, then there was an introduction of kind of like a confusion campaign, like, um, you know, trying to confuse the traits, you know, the terms sociopath versus uh, psychopath versus antisocial personality disorder, uh, some fighting and arguing, uh, people blaming other people for being psychopaths. It was, uh, you know, a big confusing disinformation campaign. Uh, then the, that didn't work because people kept holding firm to the concepts. They were doing pretty well. And then along came the idea, well, if we can't, uh, you know, completely confuse the issue about psychopathy, who is or who isn't, or, you know, what a psychopath really looks like or acts like, um, assuming that you can get close enough to them to make a long-term observation, which is what it really takes when you've got the good ones. Because believe me, the ones who are in prison are failures at psychopathy. You know, the really good ones take a long time and multiple 360-degree views from many people in order to really suss them out. Because as Harrison pointed out, it's not practical to go around and give people these brain scans or whatever. And, and for all we know, brain scans are not effective. I mean, I don't think that I don't think a brain scan is the answer. So what they did then was they began to convert the concept of psychopathy to something that's cool, something that's desirable, somebody who's fearless, somebody who's, uh, uh, you know, got everything on top. You know, he can go out there and he can rape, pillage, kill, and plunder and come out on top. I mean, geez, you look back through history, and, and that's where I spend most of my time reading history. Nearly every leader who is commemorated with statuary and peons of praise and honorifics and uh, is remembered by their country as being, you know, their 
liberator or their hero or their great general or their great emperor or whatever was a freaking psychopath, for God's sakes. I mean, our culture makes heroes out of monsters. That's the problem, and they're doing it again today. They're making heroes out of monsters. Our whole uh, a trend towards civilizing humanity that began... Uh, you know, sometime in the Renaissance, where we began to look at human values, got twisted and corrupted. And now we're on the verge of entering a virtual dark age because monsters are being proclaimed as the heroes of our age. Absolutely. Uh, that's, a, that's a very good point. Um, and, it, and it kind of speaks to the <clears throat> what we were talking about before, about how... Uh, the ordinary population is is psychopathized or psychopathologized, ponerized. whichever way, ponerized, if, if you like, uh, by largely by. I mean, Harrison was talking about how just the ideals of the psychopath, if they're in positions of power, will spread throughout the infrastructure of a country, in the you know schools, universities, you know media, everything. But the other aspect, one of the defining traits of a psychopath, is lies, is pathological lying, repeated lies over everything and anything and obviously that's a very good way to it's not just a matter of 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 them spreading these ideals and people adopting them but rather that people are lied to on a repeated basis and you have decent good people uh who believe the lies i mean it's if if you're a really good liar it's it's probably pretty easy to to to, to lie to someone and have them believe it you know if you do it repeatedly and with such you know charm and superficial glibness and all, all these other traits, uh, this self-assuredness. So, um, yeah, what, what was it Hitler said that the bigger the lie, the more people you'll, you'll get to believe it. Yeah, it's the same principle today. Yeah, and, and speaking of which, speaking of which, uh, I mean Harrison, do you want to kick in anything on this because I want to mention Mark Block, dude, but if you have something to say first, go for it. Well, I just want to say that um, when you have um, when you have the psycho- psychopaths in power, they, one of the points that Andrew Lobachevsky makes in his book is that psychopaths know that they're different, and that they and they know that if people knew about psychopaths, if people had all this psychological knowledge, that that would be the way of diagnosing the problem. So they know that if the mass majority of people knew about psychopaths and could recognize the traits and could recognize them in their leaders, then they'd be out of a job. They'd be out of positions of power. So what they do is that they they actually engage in this disinformation, these lies that Joe's talking about. So they will actually, um, like like you said, what we see what what we were seeing in the years after you published your articles was this idea, you know, to conflate the the subjects of sociopathy and psychopathy and to just to, to kind of make a muddle or a, a mess of the issue so that people wouldn't understand it. Now, that didn't exactly work because, um, well, I think because um, like the Internet and uh, social media and the, just the way that people can be connected, information could be shared a lot more readily and a lot more easily than it could be in the past. So we've got this information available. So then the, the, tech, the tactics changes so that um, the, it's not so much that the the idea or of psychopathy is confused. It's just that the it, it starts to be something that's cool, right? So so we get people uh, characters like Dexter or you know young boys 
who read you know comic books they they like the the really tough characters that can you know go to war and uh, <laughs> you know you know kill people and then come back and you know just not feel anything like you know they it's like oh he's really he's like Wolverine he's really badass right that's you know that's what I hear kids saying and so but the thing is that it's it's tapping into something I think about about human psychology is that normal people feel fear and they feel anxiety and you know people don't like that so when they see a psychopath who has none of those traits and who appears just totally cool and able to get through anything you know a part of them uh, a part of, the, of a normal person will say wow you know that would be really great you know if if only i couldn't feel you know all these negative emotions and this anxiety and if, well, you know, if i could just get over myself here's the that? problem though the problem mm-hmm. is is that with the conflation and the manipulation of the definition of psychopathy what they've done is they've attributed uh, characteristics to people that when looked at in a certain light would be positive. Oh, they're charismatic. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're daring. Oh, they charming. take risks. They're charming. It's like, you know, I mean, all of these sort of attributes, when they're described this way, I mean, who wouldn't want to be charming and charismatic? That's a good thing. That's not yeah. a bad thing. I think that the problem is is that the emphasis has taken off the essential core concept of, of the complete and total lack of conscious, conscience and the the incredible desire and ability to manipulate and destroy and harm other people and on a massive scale um, and the desire to do it. I mean, it's just, you know, those are the things that I consider to be like core to psychopathy, not that they're charismatic or even necessarily that they're glib. Well, that that brings up another problem. The problem is, is that uh, a true hero could be charismatic. He could be brave. He, of course, would feel fear, but he would be like, you know, like the old saying says, you know, courage is not never feeling afraid. It's feeling afraid and doing what needs to be done anyway. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm reminded of, you know, there's kind of a silly movie uh, that we watched a few years ago, and I'm sure everybody uh, is familiar with it. It was called V, but it's not the V for Vendetta one. It's V about the aliens that came to Earth. It was like a TV special over yeah, several... Anyhow, they had this uh, young girl, little little blonde girl, doctor, who was or a scientist of some sort, who somehow ended up being the leader of the resistance against the aliens. And at one point, she's... Uh, uh, obliged to fix a, a leaking pipe or a you know for a water system, and she begins to cry because she doesn't know how to do anything. And why does everybody keep looking at me to be the leader? Why does everybody keep asking me what to do and so forth? And then an older woman says, "Well, you know, you don't have to tell people that you don't know what to do. You don't have to uh, um, know everything. Just act like you do because because they are looking to you for for leadership." And the thing is, is that she had this like inner core of, of righteousness, of, uh, of, of strength, and just knowing what was right, and that something was right, and she wasn't gonna give an inch about it, you know. So if when somebody is like that, they can be extremely courageous. They can be extremely charismatic. They can do lots of things, uh, and these are the kinds of traits that psychopaths emulate and mimic. Right. Because remember, a psychopath wears a mask of sanity, and the really good ones you can't tell because they keep their filth and and the ugliness and the darkness and you know the black hole inside them well hidden, and they constantly live a lie. They live a constant right. pretense. And I would I would point out that I, you know I don't really see the 
you know, the sort of like the valiant war hero who goes and, you know, shoots 50 people and throws himself off into lines. I don't necessarily think that that person's a psychopath in that context. I mean, a lot of people think that just because, you know, someone's like a, a soldier or something that they must be some sort of psychopathic killer. I don't really take with that. Um, I think that, that psychopaths pretend to be those things. They pretend to be brave. They pretend to be fearless. They pretend all those things with their words, but actually when you put them on the field of battle, they're not any of those things. They they don't give a hoot. <laughs> they don't give a shit. It's, the problem is is not being charismatic. The problem is not even being manipulative. The problem is is why you do things. And psychopaths always do things for self-interest. They don't want to benefit their group. Now, if you tell a lie, if you're if you're a leader, and you tell a lie that's going to help people um, get through a difficult time, then that's a whole different story than you to, than than a person who tells a lie because they want to get something for themselves. You know. So. What do you think, Harrison? Yeah, I think that Jason made the most important point um, about this is that all of these traits that we look at as being positive in psychopaths and, you know, Kevin Dutton's book um, on why psychopaths, you know, why, why psychopaths, psychopaths have traits that, you know, are good or that we might want to emulate. It's because this complete lack of real psychological knowledge where we see that all those traits are things that real humans can come to without being psychopaths. And they're not even the, they're not even the real traits of psychopaths. They're the, the real things that psychopaths just emulate or fake. And when you, so what they've done is kind of conflate the issue where we've identified these traits that can be really positive and that real, that real leaders do have, like courage and bravery and, you know, the, the ability to get through difficult situations. And by, by identifying them with psychopaths, the, you know, the psychopaths get off fine, but what, what they're really missing, what people are really missing is that when you have a psychopath, you might have all of these traits that resemble, you know, good things, but at the core of it, you have this total darkness, this total destructive nature that will just consume another person. And you can't have one without the other in a psychopath. Like with a psychopath, that is always there. So when you're, tr- when you're em- trying to emulate a psychopath or you think psychopaths are cool, that's, that's what you're emulating, and that's, that's what it comes down to. If you want to emulate good traits, you can find those good traits in good people. They're not essential features of psychopaths. So the I whole thing. Or yeah, go on. I was going to say because you did mention some things like comic book characters, and I mean, I know there are some comic book characters who are kind of bad. I wouldn't say that Wolverine really is. I think <laughs> no. some storylines he is, but since I'm a Wolverine fan, I'm going to have to defend him a little bit. Or even, you know, say for instance, John, Johnny the Homicidal Maniac. Yeah. I, and, you know that's a real that's a real sort of psychopathic kind of character intended to be, or Hannibal Lecter, right? These are media characters that are portrayed to be psychopathic, but actually in the end they're not. They follow a very heroic pattern. They just kind of end up doing bad things coincidentally, and so yeah. they're they're misrepresented as psychopaths. You know, Wolverine calling Wolverine a psychopath is actually not fair because he is extremely brave and he's extremely caring for uh for, for various other characters like in, in the in the cartoon he was very caring for like Jubilee and stuff like that. That's not psychopathic. He's not mm. psychopathic. Um Hannibal Lecter is not a psychopath by like any stretch of the imagination. He's like a composite hero character who does serial killer like things, but that's only like the gimmick of the movie. Whereas the per- the character, Hannibal Lecter, is actually uh, he's like a he's like a gentleman in a certain sense and, and, and all of his killings uh, seem to always be portrayed as having something to do with 
revenge against people or the punishment of these sort of like people that are around him. You know, like when he feeds the victim to a whole bunch of posh, you know, sort of wannabes and stuff like that. So, I mean, those kind of characters, when they're represented, I mean, I haven't seen Dexter, so I don't know. But the way it sounds, actually, is that he's kind of like the coincidental psychopath. It's like here we've created a hero character that's going to go on a hero's journey. Oh, and by the way, every once in a while he stops and kills people. Mm-hmm. So that, that's like a misrepresentation of psychopathy because a real psychopath is, is to me like this wheedling – it's like the cypher character. I think the cypher character in, in The Matrix is kind of like the perfect psychopath. He's always running around in the background talking to people, trying to manipulate things, stealing them out like when he has that discussion with Neo and when he has that discussion with um, Trinity. Moss's, Trinity's character – and then in the end, and then he's 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 two timing them, and he waits till they're all vulnerable, and then he tries to kill them. He's not brave. He's not skilled at anything. He's just a manipulator, and he's a psychopath. So, I, when I hear uh, of a media portrayal of a psychopath, the first person I think of is Cipher from The Matrix, not Wolverine, and you know, not Hannibal Lecter. So yeah, that's all I had to say on the media thing. Yeah. It's. It's not just in in popular media and culture that uh, we're seeing this subtle conflation of, of uh, perversion, if you like, of, of what it, the understanding of what a psychopath is. Um, there was a recent study, so this is in academia, we're seeing it too, a recent study done on past U.S. presidents where they took some of these psychopathic traits um, that, are, that are used in the manuals we've discussed before, and they... Uh, categorized U.S. presidents based on this, based on ruthlessness, tough-mindedness, leadership qualities, uh, charm, charm, etc. And the result of it was to put JFK at the top of the pile. Which is just absolutely insane, because of course... And and by the way, George Bush was quite a bit down. (laughs) Yeah, but George Bush has got to have been one of the most psychopathic presidents we've ever seen. I mean, that... I mean, you, all you have to do to, to see George Bush is go back to that time when that lady was being um, executed on death row, and he's there's a recording. Carla Faye Tucker. Yeah, Carla Faye Tucker. Where he, there's a recording of him <gasps> laughing and mocking her. Oh, please don't kill me, don't cry me, and he's laughing about it. And it's like that. That was his. That was him dropping the mask. That was what the kind of person he was. Can you ever think of JFK doing something like what that? What about him crawling around on his? on his hands and knees looking for the the weapons of mass destruction. destruction under the table at some kind of banquet. Oh, yeah, not here, you know, and I'm making fun of it. I mean, he he lied. He went over, he killed people. How many how many Iraqi casualties have there been now? There's, there's the whole well, one, there's one and a half million, but, yeah, that's yeah. a good point. He was at a constant foreign relations talk, and he was making fun of the fact that they couldn't find the weapons of mass destruction, that they had launched a war to find, knowing that there were, that they didn't exist, and in the process, they killed 1.5 million Iraqi civilians. <clears throat> and Obama, in, in, in similar style, uh, a few years ago at another kind of dinner, it might have been the, the press, the annual press, 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 dinner. press dinner, where he um, where he made a joke about drones. Oh, yeah. You know, Two words. Predator drones. Pro- yeah. You never see him coming, and everybody laughed. And, you know, and these are, on a daily basis, possibly even that day, <laughs> these drones that he's talking about, blew away an entire Pakistani family or an Afghani family that were at a wedding or something like that. You know, so, um, I mean, it, it is quite quite subtle in a way because people, ordinary people, non-psychopathic people, do make fun sometimes, kind of the term uh, yeah, operati- yeah. operating room uh, humor, you know, where you can make fun or laugh at something, make light of something uh, that's quite normally quite grave. Yeah. So, so it, is, it is subtle, you know, and that kind of thing that they do passes muster 
Mm. But that's because, part of their mask. But that's part of their mask, exactly. And uh, <laughs> and obviously they are when you look behind the details. I mean, people who make make light of certain situations with operating room humor. They're not going out or they're not ordering anybody to go out and kill innocent civilians where these people are. So it's always about looking at their actions um, more so I, than their words. I can't remember who was it. Oh, yeah, it was, um, it was Minnie Driver's character in Gross Point Blank who said probably one of the greatest lines ever is that people tell jokes about the horrible things they don't do. They don't actually do them. And she says it to the main character who's a, who's a professional killer. And he, he told some jokes about it. And she said, I thought you were joking. He said, like, I wasn't. And she was like, you know people joke about the horrible things they don't do. They don't do them. You know? And that's kind of like the quintessential explanation of a psychopath. Yeah, there are people who joke about that. But if, you know, 20 minutes earlier, you signed a paper that just killed, you know, 10,000 people from some bomb drop, uh, you joking about it is totally not cool. Okay, that's yeah, wrong. It's totally different. And it's a totally different situation than somebody saying, well, yeah, there's horrible stuff going on. Anyway, so yeah. Yeah, Harrison. Yes. Uh, you mentioned this guy, Robert Dutton. Kevin Dutton? Sorry, Kevin, Kevin Dutton. Um, what's, I know, I know you've, what's your take on him and in terms of his motivation in writing this book? I mean, he said, he said himself that he claims that his father was a psychopath. First of all, Harrison, before you answer, I just wanted for our readers just to explain a bit. Okay. So there's an author of a book named Wisdom of Psychopaths. The author's name is Kevin Dutton. He's a University of Oxford, Oxford, England professor of psychology. And he wrote this book sometime late last year, and it's currently the bestseller, the book, the go-to book on psychopaths. Um, so it's getting a lot of press reviews and, and uh, seems to be getting a lot of promotion. In fact, it's popping up all over the place on the web. That's so, uh, yeah, go ahead and answer your question there. Well, i got to say, first of all, that I haven't read the book. I've read some of his articles so I don't know, you know, I couldn't give a totally comprehensive view on him, but from what I've read, you know, it appears just like what Laura was saying, that it, he's basically peddling disinformation. He's trying to present something that is really horrible as not so bad. So he's presenting all these traits of psychopaths saying, oh, you know, well, you know, the fact that they're fearless, oh, well, you know, that's good because, you know, normal people, you know, need to be fearless once in a while or, uh, you know, it would be a good thing. And Martha Stout, in her review of the book, now she wrote she wrote a book called The Sociopath Next Door, which is a really good book on um, just you know personal interactions with psychopaths, and it's just a really good introduction to the to the to the concept. And she wrote that the in the in the entire book he he, he mentions con- conscience in passing once or twice, and he never really talks about the main issue of psychopaths. He never really talks about the fact that they lack conscience. He never talks about the things that Jason mentioned, like you know the, what what really goes on beneath the surface. So it's really this superficial view of of psychopaths that just feeds into the the disinformation about the topic. And so we get um, we get this this phenomenon where the the traits of psychopaths, you know, we in, in the media we might call someone a psychopath. Like let's say, like I did, let's say that someone calls Wolverine a psychopath when he's not. And then, once we've made that connection, we we have in our minds disinformation about psychopaths. So we think that psychopaths are a certain way. We think that oh, maybe there's a heart of gold underneath the you know the evil exterior. Maybe there's something that can be saved within, and maybe you know they're just a, a soul in struggle, and all they need is a bit of nurture, to, you know, to you know to become a good person. 
and really that <clears throat> that's totally untrue. And so that's basically the way I see Dutton's book, uh, at least from what I've read of it, is that he's presenting these just totally um, pie-in-the-sky fantasies about about psychopaths that just have no basis in reality and get people to um, identify with and admire these traits in psychopaths and in turn admire psychopaths and to say that they're not so bad when really the issue is completely different than the way he portrays it and way more evil. Yeah, and I'd like to say something about that whole psychopaths are fearless. I mean, uh, looking at like the the, the Ken McElroy kind of thing, which we've all kind of decided. Like, we read that book in broad daylight, and it was a, made into a movie. And uh, the psychopaths are only fearless when they they think, either rightly or wrongly, wrongly sometimes, that they are in a position of power over somebody, inordinate power where they can do whatever they want. They're not fearless. Because when you see you know them facing off with a crowd that recognizes them and they can't control anymore, all of a sudden they run and hide. Why do they run and hide? Because they do have fear. So psychopaths are not fearless. They're, they're shameless and they're, in, they're unable, you know, psychologically, mentally, with, from some brain dysfunction, whatever, of conceiving of failure and inadequacy in a situation because they have such a, a low opinion of everybody around them. Oh, I'm so good. I'm going to go in here and manipulate these people and they're so easy to control. And you see what happens when those people fail and they get discovered and the mask comes off, that they are not fearless at all. They are terrified. And, they're, and that's why there is such this effort to uh, bombard the population with propaganda about psychopaths, to twist it. This is why Lobachevsky describes how they went into all the libraries and took out all <clears> the books <throat> about that topic because, you know, they are afraid. They're not fearless. I, I, don't, I don't think it's fear. I think it's... Uh, I think it's... Um apprehension over losing food. Uh, I don't think it's fear in the same way we understand fear. I think it's, uh, and, and I, I think it's rage even, anger, you know, that somebody is, is clearly depriving them of their potential food by exposing them. Uh, that, that's, that's been what I've seen, what I've experienced, uh, is that when you when you seek to expose them, they get angry and they come at you in a rageful way because if you think about this, is this movie that you're talking about, this book, this Ken McElroy, when he realized that he was going to be put in a position where he would no longer have food, uh, he set himself up to be killed. Basically, he he pushed he pushed the envelope too far, and the people in the town where he lived, where he had been controlling everybody for years, you know, they all uh, gathered together and assassinated him essentially. They, you know, got into uh, vigilante violence and killed him. But, you know, I, I, I don't think that he didn't know that that would happen. I mean, if he, if, if he didn't know that that's where it was going to end, then, uh, then we're just seeing an extreme example of the Dunning Kruger effect. <laughs> yeah, and when one of the questions that I've had and I haven't been able to answer for a long time, is whether or not psychopaths know they're psychopaths. Yeah. Know they are different from other people. Personally, while I, while I can't be sure, I, I tend to think <coughs> they don't. I tend, tend to think that they're basically just a force of nature. They just do what they do. They, in, in, in the same way that, you know, people don't question, ordinary normal people don't question whether they're fundamentally different from anyone else. 
I, I, I tend to think that psychopaths will, will do the same, that they don't, they don't sit around and they're not, they're not smart enough in a way to notice that. But Lobachevsky says they do know they're different. They, they well, know they're different. I, I know, but I... I but like they're, just they're in terms of different. They think that they're elite. Different in the sense of better, but not different in the sense ah, of knowing, yeah. knowing their own psychological or internal makeup and knowing that there's this vast gulf between them and normal people in yeah. terms of empathy. Yeah, and I how, agree. And, you know, and how we're going to and to use this then, you know. Well, they have no insight. Exactly. Because so, there was always that, that uh, kind of contradiction in a way and the idea of them knowing that they're psychopaths and, and also having no insight and not really thinking long term, but basically just being reaction machines, destructive reaction machines, you know. So well, I, think uh, that, I think that they, if they know that they're different in some sense, it's kind of almost on an on an instinctual level. Like they'll be able to identify the the easy prey. They'll be able to say, okay, well that person's an easy victim. So like on some level, they 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 know who's an easy mark, and that they and they know that they'll be able to have power over them. I don't think, but I think. But I agree with you that they don't really think about it too much. Like they don't really analyze it and say, "Oh, it's because that person has a conscience," because they don't they don't understand what a conscience is. They just see that uh, this person will act in certain ways that will make them able to be manipulated to get something that they want. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I don't. Yeah, so I think that on some level they know they can identify, you know, a person who is different from them, who is who is easy prey. But I don't think they actually yeah. put it yeah, in not- the concepts that we do. I want to I want to ask a question to all the listeners out there. Have any of you ever encountered or been involved with somebody who you really thought was cool, you really looked up to and admired and then over time you uh realized that there was something really wrong that they were that their that their behavior uh was was off that their uh, that their coolness that their uh Charisma uh, was basically something that was oriented to getting their needs fulfilled at the expense of anybody else, and maybe they stabbed you in the back at some point in time. Uh, if anybody has had any, you know, any experience like that, we'd sure like to hear about it. So give us a call. Yeah, feel free to call in and share your experiences because it's um, it's in the direct experience of of, of these kind of people uh, that you really get to, to understand the. The, the nitty-gritty of, of how they operate and the little subtle ways that are not so subtle ways that they that they go about their their business. So, Harrison, um, just getting back to the topic of the effect that psychopaths in power have on um, the human population. You know, th- there's there's two pretty famous experiments um, that were conducted, I think, in the 70s. Uh, one one is the Milgram experiment, and the other one is the Stanford um, Stanford Prison experiment. Stanford, yeah, Stanford Prison experiment. And uh, actually, before I get into that, someone appears to have responded to Laura's request. Maybe so. We're going to take a call here. Hello. Uh, hello. Hi. What's your name? Hi. This is uh, Shane from New York. Hi, Shane. Welcome, Shane. Hi, uh, hi everybody. Um, actually, I didn't. I didn't hear what was just uh, being talked about because I was. Okay. Uh, I was dialing. Um, but I just wanted to get uh, get into uh, this issue a little bit about just this framing of the uh, perception of both 
psychopaths and just pathological behavior. It seems like it's been going on for uh, quite a long time, perhaps you know uh, for you know even before psychopathy was was being researched. But it's interesting when the issue was um, first being addressed by Cleckley and uh, and and some others in in, in the early 40s that. Uh, uh, there's there's an old book, uh, Rebel Without a Cause. That 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 was a, a book that was written a couple years after uh, Cleckley wrote uh, Mask of Sanity, and it's basically the uh, description of uh, trying to understand the psychopathic criminal. And that in turn, that 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 very phrase, Rebel Without a Cause, then you know that was made cool. You know, via James Dean, um, yeah. and then you have you know the, the whole this whole history uh, of you know these James Bond characters and all sort of all sorts of these you know murderous heroes being ideal uh, being idealized for for decades. Um, so uh-huh. so it's interesting, I think that you know it's only been very recent that it's been explicitly stated that it's the psychopath that. You know, it's is is something uh, to be aspired to. It's not you know just the behavior that's being twisted, but they've had to come right out and say, uh, you know, that that psychopathy is cool, pretty much. Um, you know, prior to that, it was just the perception of the behavior that was being distorted into some ideal. But um, now, it, now that I think it's it's being made more clear, you know, what this behavior is, uh, you know, it's being exposed. That you know they've had to kind of play this. They've pretty, had to ra- they've had to ramp up the propaganda. You mean? Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. play this pathetic card. You know, of you know, just saying, yeah, yeah well, psychopaths are yeah. cool. You know. Absolutely. Yeah, I think there is a, a process of trying to combat the the truth that has been spread about psychopathy. You know, in the world, and you know, particularly on the internet and the stuff that we've published. That they've had to do something about that, and we just talked about that with these top or uh, best-selling books, you know, glorifying psychopaths. But also, I think there's a long process of um, of polarization of the the spread of psychopathic ideals that that may, you know, it it may be an actual a real symptom, you know, in the sense of it's not just propaganda. What we're seeing in the media and uh, on, on, in movies and in you know. In, in social life, basically, these aspects of these psychopathic aspects are actually real symptoms of of a problem. You know what I mean? It's not just uh, they're not just trying to convince us that we're all psychopaths. There are a lot more psychopaths, or at least uh, more people who have been polarized uh, because of a long term, you know, infection, really psychological infection. It, it's uh, it's completely insidious. I mean. On the one hand, it's something that's very subtle. On the other hand, they are trying to do, deal with the issue head on. And the message that's coming through is, hey, you know, psychopaths, they're not so bad. They're they're funny. They're witty. Sometimes they're even useful to society. So, yeah. Um, All right, Shane, thanks for your call. Yeah, thanks for having me. You guys are, uh, love your show. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Shane. Thanks. Take it easy. Have a good one. We're going to go to another call here. Hello. 
Hi, I hope you don't mind me calling again, but I wanted to respond to Laura's question. This is Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Uh, Welcome back. I've had a few experiences with people like that. Uh, I married two people that were like that. I thought they were very cool. They had a lot of charisma. Um, I was completely snowed. Uh, one person I spent almost 10 years with, and uh, another person I was with for the better part of seven years. And uh, the things that this person, well, both of them actually did, the psych, it's like psychological torture, and they, they change over time. They, they, don't, uh, they don't maintain their charm over time, and, and they end up changing you as well. They get you to do things that you normally wouldn't do over time, and you start acting and behaving like them, uh, cruel Cruel verbal abuse. I mean, uh, it it ends up alienating you from the good people in your life, people you love and care about, and changing very basic things about yourself. Um, the the person that I was married to for <laughs> the total of three months, although I was with him for the better part of seven years, and I really looked up to him and respected him because he's a He's a pretty well-known writer, and, and we did a, a show together. And um, he ended up doing unspeakable things. This person I thought was so cool eventually tried to kill me, literally. Whoa. And uh, this is something I didn't foresee in the beginning, but there were many, many signs along the way, and and uh, and I was warned by others um, <laughs> extensively and had opportunities to leave, but... And I did leave three times, and three times, despite better judgment and the wisdom of people who who could see clearly what was going on, I could not see. And and it's amazing how something can be right in front of your face, and you just don't see it. Mm-hmm. You don't see it sometimes until you hit the very bottom, and there's no choice but to see it. I don't know. Um, yeah. I think there's a lot of people out there who are in these personal relationships with with other people, and and at first you think they're, you know, the next best thing to pizza, and uh, you actually start convincing yourself of this, despite these red flags along the way, how they how they treat other people, the little actions that they do in the course of a day. Um, and, and, and it's good that you brought up the, the rage part of it, because once I started reading about uh, psychopathy and being exposed, Laura introduced me to this whole, this whole subject. I think it was in 2005 or 2006. Uh, I started reading it, and I started reading about sadistic narcissists. I started seeing all these characteristics in the person I was living with, and I would try to talk to him about it. And his resistance to even uh, talking about the information, he would become so angry. And I remember having Laura on my show. We did a subject, you know, a show on this subject, the subject of evil and psychopaths. And he boycotted that show. He didn't want to be a part of that show at all. And it was the only one he wasn't a part of. And I thought that was pretty telling as well. And over time, uh, this person broke me down 
to where I didn't even recognize myself. So I think it's really good that you're bringing this up. Uh, this is the first time I've spoken out really publicly, like on a radio show, about this. And, uh, and it could be someone that you look up to, you know, someone that you admire, someone who has accomplished a lot of things and under the guise of doing good. And when I was with him, I thought that I was doing good, a lot of good, for, for a long time. And what it was doing was destroying me. This person tried to get me to self-erase, to kill myself. He he kept trying, saying things, to make me want to die. That's not somebody who uh, is supportive and cares about you. You know, but the public face was that he was very supportive of me. When people, you know, would attack me for things I wrote, for example, uh attack me personally and as a woman and as a mother and a human being, he would publicly defend me. But what he was really doing was exploiting what was happening to me for his own personal gain. And I didn't see that at first. And uh, then behind the scenes, he would attack me more viciously than the people, you know, who were coming after me publicly. It's very interesting how they change and and how eventually eventually you have to see who they who they are and what they are, you know. And I guess it just all depends on the toll how long it takes you to make that realization and the toll it ends up taking on you. And it takes a very very long time to heal from mm-hmm. an experience like that. And I that's think, that's what I want to say. Yeah, I think the uh, part of the problem is the fact that it's so painful come to the mm-hmm. realization that somebody you looked up to and admired is not right. what you believed they were. Yeah, it's- I didn't want to believe it at all. And even when I convinced myself a part of me knew better and was listening to, to the people around me that were trying to help me, I, I wanted I wanted to still believe that I could salvage this. I didn't want to be a quitter. I, I thought maybe I could change it this person or I it was something I wasn't doing right and they always make you believe that it's you and deflect off of their own actions and words and their words and actions they rarely if ever jive and and that's a really good thing to look out for if their words and their actions don't jive and so a person can act one way in front of one you know publicly and then they act completely different to you behind the scenes and yeah. it's very traumatic. It yes, it it induces uh, post traumatic stress disorder. It's uh, uh, it's a horrible experience. And I think that what we're seeing is uh, socially and culturally, you know, on a on a wider sociocultural level, we're experiencing that because people do not want to see the fact that things that they have been conditioned to, from birth to believe are heroic or good or right or proper are not, in fact, you know, what they've been told they were. I mean, it's like somebody losing their religion. You know, they're raised in it. It's it's part of their uh, enculturation. And then they wake up one day and realize, you know, wait a minute, you know, a whole lot of that isn't true, so it can't be the, you know, the true word of God. And it's it's a shattering realization. So You know, Laura, you mentioned, too, about how, they have this apprehension about losing food. And that's such a good point to bring up because they really do feed off the good people around them. And, for example, in my case, uh, you know, when we were doing this show, 
he would feed off of me. I would have to finish his sentences, and he would leave me unprepared for every show, wouldn't tell me what it was even going to be about. We couldn't discuss it until, boom, it was time to do the show. And then I had to somehow come up with, you know, responses and, and talking points, and it was really anxious for me to do these shows, and I would be very nervous about them. And it was like he would deliberately put me on the spot every single show and uh, kind of took pleasure in it, you know, watching me try to not sink. <laughs> and uh, and it, things like that, you know, uh, just well, he I mean, couldn't I... even do the show after I left because there was no one to feed off of. Do we have another call? Yeah. We yeah. got another caller coming in, Lisa. Thank you okay, so thank much. Okay, thank you very Sweetie, much. And you have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. Bye, Lisa. Hi, caller. Sorry for keeping you waiting there. Hello. What's your name? Betsy. Hi, Betsy. Hi. Well, Just enjoying y'all's radio show and good. was responding to Laura's question about whether or not You've ever had an experience with a psychopath, and I've had quite a few. Um, I was actually raised by one, but probably the most traumatic for me was Obama. And I know how that sounds, but he came along at a period in my life when I really didn't think there was much hope for this society. And this is this is during the primaries. This is before he was even on the ballot. Um, all my friends most of them members of now and whatnot were of course shooting for the first female president but i saw this man who i thought um was a good man um he had you know no he wasn't a career politician he just he talked a good story he talked a good line i worked my butt off um all through the primary all through the election I really thought, you know, here we have this, he's, he's a man of color, he's, he's not a part of the machine yet, I didn't think. Um, I was, afterwards, once he actually got in office and I realized, my God, he's a complete psychopath. I spent, I'm still kicking myself. I, I, it's just, how could I, who has an entire lifetime of experience of dealing with pathological people, how could I have been that dumb? I think uh, Obama kind of really did, you know, sort of do a number, work out any any racial kinks in America. I mean, there was this whole idea of, of racism in, in America, and as a black president, he really did uh, turn that on its head and show that uh, that that a black president can be just as evil as any white guy. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, here he is going around to the Indian reservations and. You know, doing the whole "I feel your pain" thing, and I, he, that man had me in tears more than once. Yeah. I truly believed that if we could get him into office, that the United States would change. Would take. I just wanted. To, I just want to say that I was one of those who knew that nothing would change because I knew. Well, I didn't he know you then. Well, <laughs> but I knew it, and nearly everybody else I knew, they were saying, "Oh, Obama's going to change things. There's hope. There's hope. There's hope." And I kept saying. He will not get elected if there if he's going to do anything different. It just mm. will not happen. In fact, he ended up being actually worse than George yeah. W. Bush. Yeah, I possible. never thought I would wish to see Bush back. Well, hang on a minute. Because, <laughs> hang on a minute. Because <laughs> Bush was was ignorant and and he was he was just this, he was like this teenage boy, and Obama is a very articulate, 
mature person and also evil. Yeah. And, and in a certain sense, the fact that he has so much wherewithal about him makes it all the worse because he's so much more dangerous. He's so much, he has... He's, he and has, he's incredibly he's, charismatic in person. Yeah. yeah. Well, that just, uh, highlights, that just highlights the problem of, um, of, of what, we, what we've been talking about with, with psychopaths, is that, and as Laura mentioned, is that it's really difficult, and, and it's basically impossible to know in advance because you get all this charisma and that wanting to please and you know helpfulness at the beginning, and it's only afterwards when you start to see their actions that you're able to turn around and say, uh-oh, psycho. There was something that I wanted to say when, when Lisa was calling, and um, it is, it's all kind of about this in a certain sense. And I mentioned that book by Cialdini, which talks about like the seven weapons of influence and how these people operate. And I think one of the one of the problems of what makes psychopaths so successful is not really their skill and abilities. It's, it's our our guilelessness, our just absolute inability to sort of work to say to be distrustful of someone who comes along and says things. Yeah, we want to we want because we have conscience but, and we we project that onto them. That's exactly why I'm still kicking myself. I thought I knew better than that. I really yeah, did. See, yeah. you do, but in a certain sense, I mean, because you're a normal human being, you have a conscience, you love people, you you know whatever you you project that onto them, and it's 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 us people who have to change because they never can. Mm. They're they, a psychopath can never be anything other than a psychopath. But normal human beings, these regular everyday Joe, has got to change the way that they look at other people, the way they look at the world, and the way that they, they conduct themselves, not to be more psychopathic. That's not what they need to do. They need to be putting in a little bit more work and being a little bit more discerning and not kicking themselves when they get taken in because, you know, that's what psychopaths do, you well, know? Well, just to be clear, Betsy, that, you know, when we say we, or when Laura said that she knew that, uh, she knew Obama wasn't wasn't this kind of savior, um what she's what she's kind of saying is like I mean we, we didn't know based on on all the things that were so appealing about him to to everybody they were they were appealing to us as well but we had just decided quite a long time ago that anybody as Laura said anybody who gets elected isn't really the right stuff you know and that's been the case since JFK basically you know when JFK tried to do, to, to affect all this change and make the world and American society a better place they shot him for it. And that was a constant fear. As a matter of fact, one time his plane was, was pulled off for a bomb threat. And that was a constant fear of everyone who was working on the, his campaign was that they, he would be killed because we thought he was essentially another JFK. And because our history is so cyclic in the United States, the attitude was it's about time for another JFK. It really is. Yeah, it was and awesome. we we were afraid of that. We we spent a lot of time, you know, waking up every morning wondering if he was still alive. But mm. they, they worked that angle on you. See, the thing oh, is, did they? Work people like that. Like he, I'm sure that he would, you know, that 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 his own people probably called in the bomb threat type of thing. I mean, I'm, I would suspect that because, you know, I've become ultra paranoid if you know something like that happens. I'm going to think, oh, they called it in themselves. It was a it was a PR thing because that's what, that's the kind of stuff that they do. We thought maybe the one thing that might keep him alive was the fact that the black community would burn down every major city in the United States if he was assassinated. Right. I mean, it, it was that type of thinking that was going on during the primary. This this Look man is, is the hope for our future, so obviously one of these corporations well, is going to try to kill him. Oh, look, look look what happened when, when he gloriously stabbed the entire black community in the back by not changing a single damn thing and not, you know, keeping any of his promises. None of them. And not a one. He had 
see see how they reacted there. I mean, you have Eddie Griffin, you know, who says a few few mean comments about him here and there in his comedy routines, but you know, they've hey, pretty hey. much done nothing. Obama could not have been another JFK for one simple reason: he did not have Papa Joe. Oh no, I mean, he didn't have he didn't have Marilyn Monroe either. <laughs> yeah, Marilyn didn't get him into office. <laughs> Daddy had a lot of money and a lot of people who owed him favors. Yeah, that's true. And and a, a, a lot of our hope came from the fact that so much of his monetary support appeared to be coming from grassroots efforts. Of course, now it's no better. That's, but well, yeah. I mean, grassroots efforts. I mean, the only way you're going to get elected. I mean, I don't know how many. I want to know how many people have watched the entire Evidence of Revision series. You can get it on Amazon cheap. But in there, they talk about how voting uh, voting was being fixed, I mean, way back when. There was no way that anybody could get elected whatsoever if they were not selected. Well, I think the, the, the clue that I had that Obama was going to be evil was the Obama girl. We got a call? Okay, we got a call, Betsy. It's nice talking to you, sweetie. Nice talking to y'all. Bye, Bye. Betsy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We have another caller, Joe? Yeah, we do, yes. Hi, caller. What's your name? Hello, are you there? Uh, it seems like you're not there. Maybe you hung up. I've got another one. Okay. Hi, what's your name? Hello? Can you hear me? Somebody's there. Hello? I can hear them in the background, but okay. They went to the bathroom. <laughs> Maybe they'll call back. Yeah, okay. You sure. can call back. They were on hold for quite a while. Yeah. Um, Harrison, are you still there? We've forgotten yep, about still you. Here. We didn't forget about you, Harrison. <laughs> um, no, so as I was saying, like the, the tip-off that, that Obama was a fraud was the Obama girl. You know, I mean, that whole... That whole viral Obama girl thing. Do you the remember what? that? The no. Obama girl? It's some sort of like uh, stripper-esque looking woman dancing around in very tight shorts or something like that for Obama. And this is it's basically like... And you think that's a tip-off? That's a tip-off because it was so orchestrated. It was Some so kind of campaign mascot? Yeah, she was like the campaign mascot. And I was like, oh my God, that is that is so... so it's so conceived. It, it, was, it was too conceived for me, you know? I mean, it came off too fake. You know, and then they they jumped on it and they promoted it and it was all over the web and everything was Obama girl, Obama girl, Obama girl, and I was like, hmm, this is a little bit. That's strange. just a way to get the name Obama, you know, spoken at least fifty million times so that uh, everybody, exactly. so it's imprinted in people's brains. They get to the voting booth. You I know? mean, it was sex and advertising essentially is what it was. You know, I mean, it was, it was a cheap way for him to get get you know all of the young male population to be like, oh. Obama girl, hell yeah, you know, and of course they're watching all of his campaign videos. She's doing, she's doing all these sort of campaign videos for him. And I was like, you know, that that didn't fly very well. Yeah, I completely see what what Betsy's saying here. You know, Obama has done a complete number on people. I mean, hope and change. Look what we got. Hi, we got another caller. Caller. Hello, Henry. Hi, what's your name? My name is Matt Kramer. Matt, where are you from? Uh, currently, I live in Wizard Wells, Texas. 
Oh, excellent. So, welcome to the show, Matt. Welcome to the show, man. What's, uh, what's I want to visit that place. Yeah, It's actually a holistic retreat. You can come get massages and mineral soaks and all kinds of other stuff. Okay, oh, sign I'm us ready. Up. <laughs> sign us up now. <laughs> okay. What's on I, your mind? I have, a, I have a few comments. One, I'd like to say something in Obama's defense. Okay. Um, are you aware of the global gag rule? The global no. gag rule was first instituted by Ronald Reagan at the behest of right-wing religious influences, uh, demanding that no funding be provided to any third-world health clinic if they were involved in birth control and abortion. Uh, and even if it was just birth control and not abortion, uh, U.S. funding was not allowed. The consequence was it was the only health care for thousands of women and children in Africa and other third world areas, and a lot of women and children died as a consequence of the loss of health care. When Clinton was elected, one of the first things he did was rescind the global gag rule. Bush brought it back into play, and Obama's first week in office, he rescinded it. Um, I heard what you say regarding you can't become president without being tied into some very corrupt uh, influences, and I was very disappointed to see his choices with Geithner and people like that after he came into power, went into office. But I do feel he's an improvement over the other options we had. You know, right, right. Like, but when you can count on your left hand the beneficial things that someone's done, and it takes all your fingers and toes to count the bad things, I mean, like, you can't give a guy credit for doing something completely and totally reasonable, like one reasonable thing or two reasonable things. You know, you shouldn't get credit for doing reasonable things, you know? I mean, if you start doing a couple of reasonable things and, like, 20 bad things, I mean, you're an asshole. I mean, that's the bottom line. You know, when somebody like him comes into office, right, and they do a couple of good things, and you're like, well, at least he did those things. It's like, yeah, those are good things. No one is going to argue with you. But it's like, look at all the other stuff that he does. Look at, like, this, what is it, the NDAA? Look at this, uh, you know, so, yeah. I mean, in the wiretapping. Didn't close Gitmo. I mean, he didn't like he live up those promises. I mean, if, if his main campaign promise through his entire thing had been, I'm going to remove the gag rule, and that was his only thing, and then he did it, I would be like, well, finally, you know, a politician that lives up to those promises. But those weren't his major promises. No war, let's get out of Afghanistan, let's get out of this war kind of bullshit. Um, what was the other thing that he had? Uh, let's close Gitmo. Um, and, and all Put everything sudden, back the way it was now, before Bush ruined it. Yeah, basically that was kind of the platform that everyone, that was the implied platform of, of him. His implied platform was, I'm going to undo all the, the BS from, from George W. Bush. When he didn't do that, he didn't live up to his promises, and then you know. And he made everything worse. He's done worse things than Bush. And now there, now there are predator drones, you know, patrolling U.S. airspace. You know, and I'm, I'm sorry, but this, this is too Skynet. This is too sci-fi. This is too dystopian future stuff. You know, I mean, um, Matt, Matt, you just said, I mean, that he he's an improvement on the other options at the time. The other options at the time were, were well, I, McCain and. Alan. Yeah, I mean that's not really a choice. I mean that's not that's not really saying much about him that he was better than than Sarah Palin and and and, jo- and John McCain. I mean, come on, you know. Well, let me take the conversation. Let me take to... a tangent to, to another direction relative to that. All right. Uh, going back to the, the how psychopaths have influenced civilization, mm-hmm. and I've been studying this for a long time. I believe that maybe a hundred thousand years ago, the traits of a psychopath may have helped humanity to survive in terms of... I know. disagree. Well, how so? Because... Cause, cause, uh, yeah, go ahead. And develop your argument, though. I want to hear it. Yeah. Um, there's a researcher named Christopher Bone 
uh, wrote a book on moral origins, you know, why is it the human animal developed morality and no other animals did. Um, and there's Joe Brewer who wrote a book called, uh, or wrote an article that you can get about there's 70 million psychopaths around the world. You know, what are we going to do about them? You know, why do they exist? You know, what is it in terms of uh, evolution that allows the psychopath to continue to show up in our culture? And I don't have the answer to that. I do. Uh, I just read a book about it. Okay. Spell it out there, Laura. Yeah, just get a copy of my latest book. It's uh, entitled Comets and the Horns of Moses, and it's... uh, Basically, the title is self-explanatory because, for me, the horns of Moses is the big dichotomy in our culture between people with conscience and people without conscience. And, um, you know, this relates in a more recent period, for example, the um, the Renaissance Enlightenment to the uh, decision to separate the body from the mind. You know, the, the I think, therefore I am. And, of course, for Descartes, that meant that, you know, he he was imagining everything material, or he could be. You know, I think, therefore, I am total subjectivity. And then along come the uh, the materialists, and they turned that on its head, since he had established this, you know, this clear distinction in the mind-body problem between uh, consciousness and matter, or between spirit and matter, or whatever. You know, they established that matter was the only thing that absolutely existed, and consciousness itself was a byproduct of matter. So, for example, the... Uh, uh, you, you're, yourselves communicating with each other, and you imagine you have consciousness or whatever. Uh, so, so those are the kinds of problems I deal with, as well as you know some theoretical uh, speculations about where, how, and why psychopaths come along. And uh, I think you might enjoy it. Well, how do you spell your last name? Pardon, Yadzik, J A D C Z Y K. Okay, can, well, thank you. You can find it on so, Amazon. Yeah, there's another. Book uh, it's already out um, called the the apocalypse uh, comet. I can't think of the rest of the title right now. That's very bad since I just added go it. on Amazon but and put my name in. Name. There's one with the, the word apocalypse in the title, um, and that one goes into detail on that topic as well. Okay. Well, one of the things I'm, well, I'm glad you folks are doing what you're doing is. I feel that the general population is incredibly ignorant of how civilization has been distorted to its present status by the influence of psychopaths. You're going to love my book. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, and, and right. I'm working on my own. Okay. Good. Good Send us an email when it's done, and, and, and we'll see if we can give you a little promo there. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for calling, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Yeah, I mean that's obviously a, a topic for another show. Oh, absolutely. The history, the history of, of psychopathy. Where yeah. do they come from? Psychopaths and history. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, like one thing that a lot of a lot of people do is because of the kind of materialistic representation of evolution, it almost can sometimes, when it's presented a certain way, seem like psychopaths should have an edge. If unless you sit down and, and really, really think about it, it's like, yeah, why don't psychopaths have an edge? And uh, they do have an edge in a certain sense, but the problem is, is they tend to sort of they, they tend to infect a population, abuse it, take everything, and then destroy it because they're so self-interested and they start to spread and collect together mm-hmm. and rule, right? It's like this whole um, – Lobachevsky kind of talks about this. When they get put in charge of an economy, 
you know, they can't stop taking all the, making all these backroom deals and raping the economy left, right, and center. Well, that's and what we're seeing today. That's what we're seeing today. That's what we're seeing today. So at first, yes, they do benefit. They get super filthy, stinking rich at the expense of everybody else. But eventually, the society will collapse because of what they do, which is what happened in, in Russia. You know, they became so corrupt that everything fell apart. It was not because of a revolution of the people that they became what they are now today. It's because the psychopaths were so rapacious and just basically ended up ruining the entire government for themselves because they just couldn't stop with this whole corruption stuff. So in the end, it leads to, to ultimate destruction, but at first it does seem very successful. I just want to give a title of that book for Matt and anyone else who is, is interested in this topic of the origins of psychopathy, uh, among other things. Uh, the book's by Laura knight Yachik. It's on Amazon. It's called The Apocalypse, Comets, Asteroids, and Cyclical Catastrophes. Uh, anybody who's interested in this topic will find that book very interesting. And I think Matt will especially enjoy the, the uh, in-depth historical research that I've done and the fact that I have cited everything uh, with the original sources and you will have footnotes galore. If you're a footnote junkie like I am, you're going to love it. Indeed. So I just wanted to get back to my point there before that um those few calls, I Harrison, you're still there, I trust. Yes. Okay. We're yeah. getting back to you yeah, in a minute, Harrison. Just hang <laughs> on. This this topic of how psychopaths spread their influence among society. Uh, you've you've talked about that already. You've mentioned basically the spread of psychopathic ideals that are that are based essentially on a lack of conscience, a lack of empathy. There's also a lot of lies lying going on to manipulate the population but what I'm wondering here is is there a difference if, if there's a difference let's say psychopaths are fundamentally different uh, psychologically at least from normal human beings but is there a difference potentially in the normal population that makes some people more susceptible to being infected let's say if I can use that word by this these psychopathic ideals than others. Yeah. Um, one of the researchers that uh, gets into this would be uh, Bob Altemeyer from, uh, I think he's retired now, but he taught at the University of Manitoba, and he talks about authoritarians. Now, when you, like if we're going to divide humanity into you know these certain groups, we'll have psychopaths and non-psychopaths, and then for all the non-psychopaths, yeah, I think there's a spectrum where you'll get on one of the people or on one end of the spectrum, you'll get people who will just basically obey any authority for any reason and to any extent, and then if, and then at, you know the other end of the spectrum, you'll get people that question authority and will actually use their reason to de, to determine um, you know the best course of action. And so when you with authoritarian followers, these are the people that um, will back any decision made by the authorities. Um, They'll, they'll even make excuses for the authorities. So, the, so if whoever's in power, um, if they bend the rules a little bit, well, that'll be okay for them. But for anyone else, that'll justify you know extreme prison sentences or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned um, you know before the last few callers uh, a couple experiments, the the Milgram experiment and the Stanford Prison experiment. Now, the the Milgram one seems to me a pretty good way of demonstrating this. Now, for anyone that's not familiar with it. Milgram originally set up this experiment where you had the um, two people. One was like a confederate of the experiment, so he was basically an actor. 
and he would pretend to be um, the a person answering questions on basic learning. So the the test subject, the person that actually didn't know what was going on, would ask certain questions. And whenever the the other person got a question wrong, he was to push a button to give the other the other person an electric shock. And as the questions went on, the more that they got wrong, the higher the shock would be. Until it reached a point where the shock would be lethal. And when the when the test subject would push that button, the person on the other end of the of the, of the experimenter's room would stop responding. And for all the the test subject knew, that person was now dead. Now I forget the exact figures, but I think something like between 60 and 80 percent, somewhere in there, yeah, I think the it was people, 65. 65 went till the very end, pushing the pushing the button for the maximum electrical shock. Well, I mean, now, the one detail about the experiment was the guy who was being asked the questions was an actor, and he was yeah. supposed to progressively make louder and louder screams as he received yeah. shocks, and yeah. then at one point say, "I have a heart condition. You're going to kill me," or something like that. And yeah. he was acting and hamming it up. But the screaming. person, but the person administering the shocks, did it anyway. Had a, well, had a guy and uh, an authority figure in, in a white coat standing exactly. beside him, was saying, "You need to continue with the experiment. You need to continue. You need to continue." And sixty-five percent of the people selected went ahead up to the officially lethal level of of shocks. So they they virtually killed their subjects. Yeah, yeah. but at the same time, uh, Milgram, who conducted this experiment, said that virtually all of those people exhibited. For what it's worth, all of those people exhibited uh, signs of being under high stress, uh, at being at being told to continue with what they understood to be to be. But they still did it they anyway. Didn't want, but they, they did didn't it. enjoy it. But they continued. They didn't enjoy it. But they continued doing it regardless of their own conscience. So they did have conscience, but they they. But it was over. It was, overruled it was overruled by authority. Mm. Right. You know. Uh, so 65 to to 35 percent of the population, and then there was another other experiments done that put it more or less at half and half. Okay, were were half, and statistically that's not really notable, but it seems to be coming out around maybe half half of the people who were engaged in this experiment would go ahead and do what the authority told them to do up to the point of killing another human being for no good reason, uh, and half didn't. So Harrison? Well, the I think there's a lot of disinformation about this even because some people will, will interpret it as um, the kind of the be-all, end-all of explaining why certain atrocities happen in the world. So they'll use it to explain, or they used it to explain the Holocaust, for example, that it's just people um, following orders, and that's the end of the the end of the answer. That's it. It's it's just that people will follow orders, and they think that that's the the essence of the problem. Now, the the point that I think that they leave out is that okay, well, who in normal society would take the position of the authority? Would take the position of that doctor or that experimenter saying, "No, you have to go on. No, you have to go on." Well, when you look at real life examples, if you look at the if you look at the Nazis and if you look at any history of psychopaths in power, it's the psychopaths in power that are doing it. That's the essential part of the equation. And so you'll get people that will that will engage in atrocities, that will kill other people just because they're following orders. Now the thing is, like like Jason mentioned, they're doing it even if they don't want to do it. They're 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 experiencing all kinds of inner tension and um the 
looking back and like they've interviewed some of these people you know years after the fact of doing this experiment this experiment and one of the things they found is just how traumatic it was but also how much they learned from it and so in a society that's ruled by psychopaths you've got to take those two things into account the, uh-huh. the people telling the people giving the orders and the people that really don't know what's going on that have no experience no no knowledge of this kind of situation and they're just like deers and deer in the uh, deer in the headlights where they they're put in this situation that they that's completely foreign to them like um, yeah. normal human beings interacting with each other would never experience something like that they've never yeah. experienced someone egging them on to kill someone uh-huh so and so when yeah or what's that go ahead so when they oh. are put in that situation they don't have any real alternatives they haven't thought it through they haven't been been trained in in questioning authority. Yeah, they, or, becomes... or, or maybe they don't fundamentally question authority, because this is one okay. thing, you mentioned Altemeyer, and maybe this is the vision among normal human beings in terms of people who have, just naturally, by definition of who they are, uh, have an inner sense of their own authority, mm-hmm. and therefore can rely on that, uh, whereas people who don't have that, and, and I'm using this term authority very loosely it could what it actually means in terms of a difference between people i don't know but people who don't have that uh, their own internal sense of authority feel compelled to rely on or need an external authority to make decisions for them make important decisions for them and if they are in the presence of that authority they will defer to that because they don't have that ineffable whatever it is within them that will that will make them resist someone who is uh, trying to make them do something against their own conscience, against their own nature. What I thought nature. was really interesting from Altemeyer's book was that he, did, uh, he had students who were um, who were scored high on this right-wing kind of authority test. Right? They were real authoritarian. And they were put into a very liberal kind of, they were in a liberal situation. And they actually completely changed um, their authoritarian nature to follow the authority of more liberal yeah. viewpoints, right? But what he found, which I thought was the most interesting, which is the one thing that I grind on, is the minute they left that environment, they went right back to the other way. Yeah. So sometimes I think that there is, in a lot of those people, an inner, an inner almost, they almost like it more when the authority is a little bit psychopathic. Well, I think the thing is, is that, uh, and they've done some studies on this, that what happens with people is they have uh, brain chemicals that get, you know, uh, released by neurons in the brain that make them feel good or make them feel bad based on the kind of feedback that they're getting from their environment. And this is conditioned into you from early uh, early infancy. Uh, you behave a certain way, and the conditioning can be just a look, or it can be, uh, you know, your parents saying, you don't really mean that, or this is right, or you must do this, you must do that. So this conditioning goes on, and the child comes to believe, or instinctively believes, that if they do not please the parents, the parent will somehow abandon them, will not feed them, will not keep them warm, will not keep them uh, safe, and that they will die. So this this goes on in the in the brain of the child, but it continues throughout life. And then when they get older, uh, they the, the idea of the parent gets transferred, is transferred to the constituted authorities, because of course the parent is the constituted authority while they're a child. Then it becomes the, their peers for a while, and they go through a rebellion. Then it becomes the, 
you know, their government, their job, their employer. But, you know, the biggest one, of course, is the head of the government or the... Or the church. Or the church. Or, or science. The, or society at large. And so so they are, even though it makes no logical sense, the feeling that they get in their brain and in their body, which permeates them when they go against anything that the constituted authority says is right or the environment in which they find themselves, their peers, you know, causes them actual physical pain. And they must they must conform to what the authority wants them to do or what their peers want them to do to relieve that pain. And this, like, is something that I'm always harping on is this whole idea that I, I hate righteousness. I think righteousness is evil because being right is the least important thing in your life. But everyone, you know, when you're brought up, especially in America, especially in, like, fundamentalist Christian homes and, and Christian homes, they have this whole idea of righteousness, the right thing, right belief, right truth, right method of doing things, right behavior. And uh, I think that the most important thing in human life is good behavior, not right behavior. Being correct is, 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 is not necessarily a good thing if that's in contradiction to, to what is good you know, being right is not better than being good to people. Well, it depends on how you define being right. Because, sure, sure, sure. Because but, being right could be being right, good. Right, and we know how successful splitting semantic hairs are with authoritarian followers because they, <laughs> they have such an ability to conceive of that abstract concept. I'm just saying that, like, if you wanted to teach somebody of that ilk, what's more important, if they were raised in an environment that, that said goodness and empathy and conscience were more important than correct behavior than just following laws, then... Then they might learn to be good. Then they would but, they would be good, and they would be afraid of not being good instead of afraid and, of not being and right. And goodness would become the authority. Because in, in, no, but because that, that, that would like require this. that would require an authority figure to be good outside of themselves. But they <laughs> would. Not I mean, well, ultimately, of course, that's, that's what God's for. Well, exactly. But ultimately, what you're example. talking about is is you're talking about psychological pain. People experiencing kind of psychological pain when they're being asked to uh, disagree with or you know, ignore the the authority figure, the, what they perceive as an authority figure, uh, that seems like it's something that can't be corrected, can't be changed. Well, let, me, let me give... I mean, if if they have a fundamental need to, to obey authority, then it, it's, it, what it comes down but to is what kind of authority is going to be the, the one the that rules over them. The authority could be conceptual. It could be goodness. But, but, these people, but in, yeah, the, in the presence of, of authorities like the church, the government... I mean, yeah, because those guys are psychopathic. I mean, most of the, all these pedophile priests and some of those psychopathic people, you know, I mean, seriously, in, in government. That's why they're, and they harp on this righteousness, the rightness stuff. And here's an example. Righteousness according to God, of course. Righteousness according to God, but just, just the word right is wrong in a certain sense when it comes to human behavior. Because being right, being correct, is not the most important thing. But look at it this way. In Nazi Germany, um, I don't have an exact law, but I'm 99% certain that there was one. You, it was... You were legally obligated to turn in Jews. You were legally obligated to do these various things. When they went in and invaded areas, you were legally obligated to turn in your weapons and turn in any Jews that you know and report them, right? That was the law. The right thing to do for a Nazi or a German in Nazi Germany was to turn in Jews and send them to the concentration camp. That was the right and correct thing to do. It was not the good thing to do. It was the right thing to do. Laws come and go. Good laws, bad laws, all that kind of stuff. And when you have a group of people raised on uh, you have to be right and correct, then obviously they are right for exploitation by psychopaths who harp on righteousness. 
that's their big thing. I mean, whenever you they see do. It, whenever you see like all of these people, I mean, these guys are like going to, uh, you know, uh, Indochina for sex vacations and hookers and all this different stuff, and yet they have this whole family values and righteousness and. They always try to present themselves as righteous because they know that the people, and they have actively conditioned the people to look at righteousness, being right and correct behavior according to whatever. An authority, uh, yeah, an external authority, right, and that's of the problem. If people don't have their own sense of uh, their own internal authority that tells them what's right and wrong, and it, it seems to be something that you're born with because there are people who can go against all of the, the dictates of authority, even if they're, all, if they're sold as being right and just etc. People will go against those based on what? It doesn't. Well, there is no other authority telling them to do that. If their own internal the authority that says, "No, I am not going to Christians commit that do crime," do because I know it's wrong. Of yeah. what said to be done in the Bible. Of course, there's lots of contradiction in the Bible. So you, you can always find a page somewhere in the Bible to back up almost any kind of behavior. But the general spirit of most Christians is that you should be charitable. That you should be kind loving into your community, you should be forgiving to people. You know, I mean, Bill Hicks always tells this joke where he's in this this, this comedy show in this in this podunk kind of town, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so there he is, and he does his little routine about Christians and stuff like that, and he says, you know, after the show, some Christian came up and said, hey, Bill, we didn't like what you said about Jesus. And he said, why don't you just forgive me? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, that was his response. And that was, because, of course, they don't follow that kind of thing, you know? So... Even people, they will do contrary to what the Bible itself says when there is some law or behavior or paramoralistic kind of behavior presented to them of a new rightness Mm -hmm. instead of a new goodness because goodness is a little bit harder to fake than correctness. It's a little bit harder. It's still hard to fake, but I'm just saying that it's a little bit harder to fake than goodness. Right. I mean, uh, goodness is than rightness. Sorry, I had that in in inverse. So that was just basically my argument that I was harping on. I'm sorry. No, that's good, good. Thank you, Jason. So, Harrison, um, you were saying, just about this Milgram experiment and the Stanford Prison experiment, I mean, that has been spun. You were saying that has been spun. Um, Essentially, I mean, one of the comments on it that I read was that um, it has been said that the Milgram experiment and the Stanford Prison experiment were frightening in their implications about the danger which lurks in the darker side of human nature. And... I mean, Obviously that's only about sixty-five percent of people. Yeah, or even less. But also, it's it's under duress. Uh, yep. So it's not necessarily that humans. This idea that humans are inherently evil, but humans are inherently or fifty percent of humans. Yeah, either yeah. they're either or, and it all depends on who's, who's in charge giving the orders. Yeah. But there's also the, the thing that you said about the people who have their own internal sense of authority, and. There's two scary things to think about here, and one is that the people, the percentage of people that do have that internal sense of authority that will allow them to to disobey uh, a bad authority or a bad order, uh-huh. in the sense that Jason was using it, there it's it's rare. You don't have as many people. You've got way more people, like the 65%, that will follow that order. Mm-hmm. So when you combine those small numbers with the vast amount of people that can't do that mm-hmm. and if, and then when you combine that with the fact that there's a psychopath in power that really points out to me at least that what is needed or you know the, the only real way around this problem is to have an authority figure that is one of those people that has their own internal sense of authority and and goodness 
And goodness, yeah, a, a conscience. Good, a good person in charge who can reset, you know, can give us a do-over on our socio-cultural values, which have been completely destroyed and degraded. Mm-hmm. Well, and then, the, then the authoritarian yeah. followers would would, by their very nature, follow that authority. Absolutely. And they'd have an army of good people, you know, doing good things. Yeah, but the one problem with that is everyone always goes for that solution. Let's get rid of the leader. Yeah. I think it's just that's and they always line. get another psychopath. And they always get another yeah. psychopath. I mean, I think that nobody ever stops and looks at the looks at the problem from a really pragmatic perspective of saying, like, you know, you're not going to get rid of the leaders. You know, every time every time you see one of these revolutions, what do they do? They gather up all the leaders and let's cut off their heads, and then they put out a new bunch of leaders and they do the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, I think that you know the 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 chink in the armor of the psychopath is you know education is lifestyle is belief systems is people talking to each other, um, people, you know, saying, hey, this is kind of messed up and we don't believe it. That's precisely what we're doing right now. You know, precisely what we're doing, and other people should be doing the same thing. You know, it's not about starting a revolution and let's all get our guns, 1776, y'all commits again. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You know, it's not about that kind of stuff. It's all about talking to your neighbors about saying, hey, look, dude, that's that's messed up, you know, and just say, you know, Obama, hey, yeah, he did a couple of good things with this taking away the gag thing, but... What about these predator drones? And you know, right. what about that extra sixty thousand troops you sent to uh, to Afghanistan or mm-hmm. Iraq or whatever it was? You know, I mean, what uh, about those things? And Harrison, Harrison, you mentioned those fifty. You know, well, theoretically, it's fifty percent. Let's say it's fifty percent. Half of humanity are fundamentally and innately authoritarian followers and will follow whatever authority is in place uh, during their lives. And the other half at least have the potential to, to be their own authority and make their own decisions based on what Even is. If they don't. Could, it, what is right is wrong. You know. But the the and you but you said that there really it's only a very small number of people these days. It's not fifty percent. It doesn't seem to be fifty percent. We don't have this you know mass division among society between people who are their own authority and people who follow the established authorities. The way that those people who at least have the potential or have their own sense of authority and make their own decisions, the way that they deal with them is through fear and coercion. Those people have to be coerced to follow the authority of the day. And one of the, one of the reasons, one of the ways that they do that is, is through fear. And, for example, 9-11 was one way to get those kinds of people terrified, to, to, terrified enough to follow yeah, exactly. the authority that goes against their own nature. And they create fear with lies and deception. Yes. I mean, it's... Pathological it's, lying. Yeah. So that I mean, was my point. That was he made the point that I wanted to make. To, yeah, I mean, they tell all these lies and they get you into a situation where you think even you think that that the goodness is what you're doing, mm-hmm. even if you would not be the even if you could clearly see not pushing the button to electrocute yeah. somebody. But now well, the button is concealed well, and the screams have been have been hidden from you. Well, yeah, exactly. Milgram has has went nationwide and even globally. The Milgram experiment was, or a version of it, with the the torture of detainees that they were, that the that the psychopaths in power were attempting to have everyone agree with that this was a good thing that torture was necessary and and I mean that was obviously wasn't dir- was directly involved but it was a psychological operation to get everybody to sit in their own homes and think well it's probably a good thing and, and what they no no and what they really the think, other thing was I think their point was is look what we're doing. We might do this to you. That's what that I was well. going to say. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and, and that that creates the fear in them that makes them conform. So it's not yeah. so much that they are agreeing that it's right because inside them they know. Yeah. And it's maybe wrong, and but... maybe maybe that other fifty percent are just not saying anything because they're too afraid to. 
because they don't want to be carted away to secret prison. And now it's it's becoming more and more likely that this is going to happen with them declaring the protest, which, by the way, is supposed to be a constitutionally protected right, is a low-level form of terrorism. Yeah. It's like, are you insane? Are they insane? Or do they know what they're doing? Uh, They're a force of nature, and we need to get rid of them. No, yeah. you can't. That's the problem. That's the problem. You can't get rid of them. That's, that's, no. that's We need to change theory. ourselves so that they we no longer... We need to change ourselves so that they're less effective. Because I just want to say something about that thing here, because the way psychopathy comes into being when we're talking about, say, genetic psychopathy, it's, it's through genetic recombination, through sexual reproduction, which means that it's no, not a set of genes. You can't say this gene and that gene and the other gene is... a the psychopathy gene. It's not that. It's combinations of genes, and it can be also combinations of genes along with some kind of insult or trauma to the brain or, or to the body or whatever. So that, you know, each psychopath uh, can be formed or made from a different set of genes, even if they are very, very much alike. And that's yeah. why you have a whole distribution curve of psychopathy mm-hmm. where you have, you know, the... The, at the very small end of the bell curve, you have the ones who end up in prisons. And then, and then the vast majority of them are just like the blue-collar and white-collar criminals. And then at the other end, you have people like, you know, uh, people who get into power. Uh, that uh, Yeah, because that kind of stuff can quickly, like saying, like, let's get rid of psychopaths, quickly leads to, like, the, someone's going to find out, why don't we just kill them all? And that's just the eugenics argument. And that wouldn't work. I mean, it would be a horrible situation. You know, you'd end up having... They would actually infect that kind of system themselves because that's what they're good at. But you can't. You can't predict it. You can't look at somebody and say, oh, you're going to produce a psychopath because it's genetic recombination. It is, in a certain sense, a little bit random. Two people with the greatest consciences in the world can produce, can produce a psychopath. Let's you know, face it. It, it, it. It's not something that you can't get rid of it. You have to learn to cope with it and deal with it in a humane way. You can't become a psychopath to deal with psychopaths. It's not a fire, fight fire with fire type of situation. It's a you need to become smarter and not believe the lies and learn how to detect the lies and educate yourself against them. And start looking at your life in terms of not being right, but being being good. Be a good person. Try to do good things. You know, you're not going to always do it. There's good, there's evil, and there's a specific, specific situation, situation that determines which is which. Exactly. Harrison, have you any comments? I think that pretty much sums up my views on the topic. <laughs> Okay. Well, I think we've done this topic for this week. Um, do we have any? We've pretty much summed it up. There's nothing really much more to say. I'm sure. Well, there is more to say. But there is, of course, and I'm sure it will come up again. And yes, because Neely Bob has a whole stack of papers and and things that he had prepared for for the, tonight's broadcast, and we didn't let him get to any of it. <laughs> no. Okay. We just completely bogarted him. Last last <laughs> episode of Sot Talk, right? I printed out I had 114 pages worth of notes. Yeah. And I think by the end of the show, after two hours, we had gotten past the second. Yeah. <laughs> that's what that was. All of the great stuff that I had ready and prepared, and that's, I, that's always the way it is. Two I thought those papers were just a toaster for your teacup. No, no, it was really it was, <laughs> it was. No, I mean I had printed out all of these really great, great quotes from all of these, you know, founding fathers and stuff like that. Well, we'll we'll get back to the topic, I'm sure, at some point. It's, uh, we're it's gonna not, have to. It's not gonna go away. So it's you know, all tied together. The problem is, is like all of these topics, 
come talk about. They are all intricately tied together. Yeah. And we have a couple of really good uh, women authors on the topic of psychopathy <coughs> that we're going to try to get on the show here in the next week or so. And uh, so we'll let you know. We'll, we'll announce Sandra it on the website. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna see if we can get Sandra. And there's another British lady that uh, we've been contacted by recently, and we think we want to get her on the show. Maybe we can get them both on together, and they can talk about women who love psychopaths. Mm-hmm. And this actually, yep. Can I interrupt? I want to I want to just read a quote from William March's book, The Bad Seed. Because this ties into some of the things that came up in the calls, especially Lisa's last call. And I think it just kind of sums up some of the things we're talking about. Now, The Bad Seed was made into a pretty good movie, so you can check that out, too. But this is what he says. He says, um, Good people are rarely suspicious. They cannot imagine others doing the things they themselves are incapable of doing. Usually they accept the undramatic solution as the correct one and let matters rest there. Then, too, the normal are inclined to visualize the psychopath as one who is as monstrous in in appearance as he is in mind, which is about as far from the truth as one could well get. These monsters of real life usually looked and behaved in a more normal manner than their actually normal brothers and sisters. They presented a more convincing picture of virtue than virtue presented of itself, just as the wax rosebud or the plastic peach seemed more perfect to the eye, more what the mind thought a rosebud or peach should be than the imperfect original from which it had been modeled. Yeah, I mean, that's a really tremendous quote, and it comes back to this whole idea that you got to keep harping on, which is basically that these people wear a mask, mm. and they wear a mask their entire life, so they're very good at having this mask, which is why you need you know a bunch of people with this 360-degree view of a person, and you also need to work out the, the social problems that prevent you from having that, the divisions in society, you know, keep preventing people from talking to each other, the divisions in social groups, the, this fear of being seen as a gossip or something like that. So these things are like instilled in people to prevent them from talking about, you know, so-and-so pulled me into a corner and told me this about you, and is that true? And people are afraid to, you know, go and talk about it. But that's how they work. They work in dark corners whispering things. You mm-hmm. know, they're, they're not these bold, gun-toting, yeah, let's go kill everybody type of people. That's not the psychopath. The psychopath is like the soccer mom that's uh, destroying the PTA. I mean, that person's more of a psychopath than the than, the, than the, the famous soldier who charges on the battle line. Well, I don't yeah. know. George Bush said, bring him on, and he had on his his flight suit when he said it. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, come on. <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've spent more time flying planes in the military than he has. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that guy, I mean, it was such a joke. I mean, even his record <laughs> his record looks fake. I mean, most of the people went and looked at his flight his record. His piece was fake as well. I mean... <laughs> I mean that guy was that guy was such a complete and total military fraud. You know, I mean he was a fraud in every way. He was a fraud. He was a chicken liar, hawk. You know, he wore a mask of sanity, and his wasn't, wasn't very really good. very good. Obama no, was that he, awful. He, he was way way over on the left hand side of that distribution curve, yeah. and he got in because of his daddy, basically. And I would like to point out something about Americans. We sort of pride ourselves on this idea that we have presidents and that there's no, you know, hereditary king. When you have a father being president and then his son being president, why isn't this causing any kind of worry with people? Why didn't anybody say, hey, hold on a second, this is getting a little bit dynastic here. When his father has been in politics with, from the head of the CIA to various different political positions, vice president, he was vice president at one point, wasn't George? Yeah, Schneider. to and Reagan. Then, then president, 
right? And then his son comes in and is president for two terms, and I'm is this a little bit suspicious. It's a monarchy. Because if you it's look at politics, you'll see that people like Rumsfeld and Cheney and the Bushes and all of these other people, they've been in politics since like the 60s. They were in and out. Well, it's not just politics, it's corporations. It's well, a revolving door between the two. Yeah, the they, same they just faces, the same go back and forth. They spend, like a, they spend like a couple years in politics, then they go to a corporation, someone else comes in behind them, and they just sort of like teeter-totter and leapfrog through politics, making policy. And it's like you are being ruled by the same group of people for the last 40 years. Yep. I think years that uh, I think our topic is finally at the end, and I think that what we need to say to everybody is if you meet somebody who is charismatic and charming and brave and so on and so forth, don't just take it at face value. Pay attention, do due diligence. They may be the real thing. The real thing does exist. It does. Otherwise, psychopaths would not be able to pull that off on people. Mm-hmm. You know, people respond to courage and they respond to decency and and certain kinds of behaviors that are exhibited but you have to really look you have to look behind the scenes you have to have your network you have to be watching paying attention and keep your eyes open and the discrepancy between words and actions that's the big one so harrison we're going to end it here so just want to say thanks for calling in or rather allowing us to call you and ask you some questions and for Thanks your answers. Yeah. Is it cold over where you are? It's actually fairly warm. Just uh, about four degrees below Celsius yesterday. <laughs> so, that's cold. Fairly that's warm. Freezing. That's cold. Man, come on, that's Bermuda shorts and sandals weather in Canada. <laughs> it is. Talking about, you know? All right, Harrison. Great talking yeah. to you, Harrison. Have we'll uh, we'll have you back on. Have a good right, night, sweetie. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, so, and to our listeners, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, Thanks to our callers as well for calling in. Um, We'll be back next week. Same time next week, next Sunday. With an all-new topic. So, signing out, Thought Talk Radio. Take it easy.